Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Sometimes we take an indirect route, uh, but today's episode tackles that question of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve them in the most direct way possible. Last year, we published a single-page summary uh, of all of our key ideas, uh, which links to many of our other important articles, and which we're aiming to keep updated as our opinions shift. All of us added something to it, uh, but by far the single biggest contributor was today's guest and our CEO, Ben Todd, uh, who founded 80,000 Hours with Will McCaskill all the way back in 2012. The key ideas page is the most read page on the site now, uh, and by itself, it can tell you a large fraction of the most important things that we've uh, learned since we started investigating high-impact careers. But when I say single-page summary, it would perhaps be more truthful to say that it's a mini-book, because it weighs in at over 20,000 words. Fortunately, though, it's designed to be pretty modular, and so it's easy to work through it over a couple of sessions, uh, browsing through the articles that it links to on, on each of the various topics that it covers. Perhaps, though, you would prefer to absorb most of our key ideas in the form of a conversation on this podcast, in which case you've hit play on the right MP3, because that's exactly what this is. While we aren't quite as precise or comprehensive in this conversation as the key ideas page itself, uh, one benefit of of doing a podcast uh, over the article is that we can more easily communicate our many uncertainties and dive into the things that uh, we're least sure about. If you want to have a big impact with your career and you say you're only going to read one article from us, uh, we say to go and read our key ideas page. And likewise, if for some reason you're only going to listen to one of our podcast episodes, it should probably be this one. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that, as I said earlier, our advice is going to keep shifting, uh, and we're aiming to keep the key ideas page uh, pretty much up to date as our thinking evolves over time. Of course, that's not going to be possible with this podcast, which is going to be basically fixed until we do a a re-record, I guess, at some point in the future. Uh, So this represents our views as of November 2019, uh, when we launched the current iteration of the key ideas page and and actually recorded this episode. Okay, uh, without further ado, here's me and Ben Todd discussing our new guide to solving the world's most pressing problems with your career. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Ben. Hey, it's great to be here. So this is going to be a uh, pretty different episode from from the usual ones because, uh, as you might guess, listeners, I have a reasonable idea what Ben is going to going to say uh, in most cases as we've been working on this uh, together for, for the last couple of years. So instead, I guess we're going to kind of assume that listeners have either been subscribed to the show for a while and, and heard a few other episodes, or at least have like skimmed over the uh, the key ideas page. And then we're going to basically introduce all of the issues that we raise in the key ideas page, and then try to talk about some of the things that we perhaps didn't ha- didn't have space for, or some of the more interesting and, and controversial issues that that are uh, in that topic area. But before we get to all of that, maybe we can start by Ben. Could you kind of explain how you ended up uh, running eighty thousand hours, and, and yeah, what what the history is there? Yeah, so what got me involved was I saw Toby Ord give a talk at my college when I was an undergrad studying physics and philosophy, and um, Toby was also at my college, and he gave his Taking Charity Seriously talk that you can see on YouTube, and that basically convinced me pretty much right away. I'm not going to rehash the things that are in there, but it was basically the idea that some charities you could donate to um, are much more effective than others, and the best ones are super effective, so it's a really worthwhile thing um, to donate some of your money to those charities. And about a week later, I signed the Giving It We Can pledge. uh, And I think I was the uh, first non-founding member of Giving It We Can. Uh, It was like right after the launch. And then I was just kind of involved with this uh, community in Oxford of people who were trying to figure out the most effective ways to have a positive impact. At that time, uh, most of us were students. So we were thinking like one of the big questions facing us was what should we do with our own careers? And I was wondering the same. 
And so I volunteered to give a talk on how to choose a career and how some of the ideas that Toby covered in Giving What We Can might also apply to career choice. Will McCaskill happened to be in the same room and was also coincidentally thinking of doing a talk on the exact same topic. Uh, so he suggested we team up and we worked on the talk together actually in my, uh, in my room in Balliol. And yeah, in early 2011, we gave it for the first time. We gave the first talk and that, well, actually turned out to be the most successful talk we've ever given. <laughs> um, so I think there was like about uh, low 20s people in the audience. And in the end, um, over the years after that, about six of them, I think, made pretty big changes to their careers based on this. One of them, uh, a year or two after the talk, joined 80,000 Hours and still with us. Someone called Habiba decided to take the further pledge, which was a pledge to give all of her income above a threshold, I think probably around £25,000 to charity. Stayed involved and actually recently switched to uh, working a, as a senior administrator at the Future of Humanity Institute. And so, yeah, these kinds of changes convinced us that we might be onto something. Some people in the audience, such, including Richard Batty, actually approached Will and, and me and said, maybe we should start an organization around this idea uh, in addition to giving what we can. Yeah, so I, I wasn't around there at the time. Um, did you guys spend very long debating whether you actually wanted to start an organization and kind of who should run it? Probably back then we were a bit too cavalier with starting organizations. <laughs> uh, you know, probably early on we set up too many things and we should have, uh, that the kind of Oxford community should have just focused on making one project go really, really well. Though obviously I'm, you know, it turned out well <laughs> in my case. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we almost, it didn't seem like we debated it that much, but I mean, of course... We started it just as a, a volunteer side project while we were still students for a whole year. And then we um, ended up getting like pretty major press coverage on the BBC about the idea of earning to give. And we grew a blog quite a bit. And then we managed to raise like a couple of hundred K of funding, which was enough to, to hire full-time staff. And so it was that over that year that all, those, all that traction that we were getting was at that point, it seemed obvious that we were onto something. I guess at that early stage, 80,000 hours, or I suppose it was called High Impact Careers first, and then 70,000 hours, and then 80,000 hours? <laughs> yeah, not many people know that we were briefly called 70,000 hours. Yeah, in the summer of 2011, it was High Impact Careers, and we started with a, a, a beautiful red and black website. Then we rebranded to have our color be magenta, um, which most people called pink. And then we, we switched, well, we switched to the blue, actually, um, more than a year or two after that, I think. Important yeah. design issues here. But <laughs> we should dig up the website actually from 2011 on archive.org. I think that would be uh, pretty funny to look at. Anyway, so, okay. So early on, I guess 80,000 Hours was doing all kinds of things. Uh, it was like, yeah, I had a blog. I was like running all sorts of events. Uh, but I guess over time, it kind of gained a bit of focus and actually like, stopped using just interns and actually hired some people. Yeah. I mean, I think like most startup nonprofits, we did the mistake of trying to do too many things at the same time. And we were kind of thinking of ourselves partly as an advocacy campaign around certain big ideas and effects of altruism. We were partly thinking of ourselves as giving one-on-one -on -one careers advice, partly doing lectures, partly doing research into like what to actually say about these topics. And like all of these activities are pretty different. And for a small team, it's, it's way too much. So the first few years, we, we just really tried to focus the concept down a lot. And um, eventually we focused on just, you know, what we're about is giving people information and support to help them change their career. And now we just do two main things, which is online content and kind of one-on-one -on -one, uh, support. You were at some point considering doing only to give yourself, but then decided to, to found a nonprofit instead, which I guess may, may have been kind of contradictory to our advice at the time. Um, how did you end up making that decision? Yeah, I mean, 
80,000 hours early on got very associated with earning to give. And our very first lecture, the structure of that talk was the arguments for earning to give and why that could be better than kind of most typical social impact jobs. But then the second section of that talk was about how you might be able to do even more good than earning to give. And we covered our research and advocacy careers and uh, government jobs and threw out a whole bunch of other ideas that seemed like they might they might turn out to be better. And so even at the very start, we never thought that like earning to give was typically the best option or considered. And um, yeah, that was very obvious in, in my choice where I was choosing between earning to give and working at 80,000 hours. And so, yeah, I had a job offer to work in investments in finance, which is something I've been, been interested in actually kind of since I was a teenager. Uh, so I think that would have been pretty interesting. Like I would have probably enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, we really got convinced by at that time, the, the multi, what we called the multiplier argument, which is just this idea that like, if you could just change one person's career and they go and do something really high impact, then that's kind of having as much impact as, as you could have in the whole rest of your career. And so if just like every year you could help one person switch into a high impact career, then you know, you're having way more impact than uh, you could uh, yourself directly. And you know, we actually think we could, we could do much more than help one person change career per year. So we kind of like thought it through and thought like, in my case, um, just carrying on with 80,000 hours would be the highest impact thing to do. As we'll come back to actually back then, we hadn't really thought of the concept of career capital. So I just totally ignored that <laughs> in the decision. But actually, I think you know, just by luck, I actually turned out to get better career capital by doing 80,000 hours than I would have in finance, just because I've met lots of other people who want to focus on social impact and learned a lot about how to run a social impact organization. And so actually, like I, maybe if I'd known about Craig Capsule back then, it would have led me in the wrong direction. But fortunately, I was like doubly wrong and it cancelled out. <laughs> Hey listeners, uh, Rob here. Uh, just a quick note that career capital, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, uh, is this term of art that we use to describe uh, everything that puts you in a better position to have a large social impact in the long term, uh, including uh, skills that you build, uh, connections, credentials, uh, money in your bank account so you can move country and take a different job. All right, back to the interview. I guess part of the reason that we've written this uh, this key ideas article to kind of make make our ideas like super super clear um, and, and very upfront uh, is that we found sometimes people uh, they don't quite understand what we're saying or they like they read some part of our advice and and don't understand the bigger picture and as a result they end up doing something that we wouldn't wouldn't advise if we were talking to them one on one. What are kind of examples of like kind of classic or common misunderstandings that people have had of our advice or like cases where we've like communicated our ideas in, in not such a good way and so that's resulted in people making decisions that we wouldn't necessarily have advised if we'd, if we'd spoken to them one on one. One thing we've realized in recent years is that at least a core of our audience really do just want to get the big ideas directly and explain with a lot of nuance. I mean, I think partly this podcast has shown there's an appetite for that. And so we decided to recently replace our career guide online with what we've called the key ideas series. Career guide is still up, but we now kind of make the key ideas series the most prominent one. And it just tries to lead with our most distinctive ideas quickly, such as long-termism, existential risk, things that make us the most different from other people who might give you information on what to do to have a social impact. And yeah, another part of why we want to do that is because we thought some of our most important concepts were actually getting a bit lost uh, in the existing career guide. And so there's been a couple of misunderstandings we think we've been coming across recently. And the, the one that's kind of most on our mind at the minute is just how people think about career capital. And in particular, a lot of people getting the idea from our content that typically it's like the best thing to do is to work in consulting early career or some other prestigious corporate job like that 
rather than trying to do something more directly relevant to a pressing problem. Another option is we've seen people who just have like great direct impact options right away. Like they could do something like go and work at a top think tank on AI policy, or they're thinking like, maybe I should go and like work at PwC first um, to like get better career capital. And it just seems better to push on uh, in policy because even just from a career capital point of view, that's giving you a lot of other options in, in addition to being closer to having an impact. One example we came across recently was a bit of an unusual one, but it was someone who had the uh, realistic possibility of becoming a magician and maybe landing a major TV show in India. And they were choosing between that or otherwise consulting. And it actually seemed to us like the magician case was more exciting because it would mean that well, firstly, you might just, that's kind of more impressive level of achievement. You might stand out more, but um, also you're learning all about uh, media, building up an audience, and you're also doing this in the context of a really important country. So those kinds of things seem like you, you might well get better career capital from actually becoming a magician rather than consultant. Whereas I think like most people's reading of our advice would be like, in general, uh, consultant is um, the thing that we'd want people to focus on. Yeah, it somehow kind of seems more serious. And so they might think, oh yeah, that's like the thing that 80,000 hours would recommend. Uh, but I guess actually we're like very keen a lot of the time to have people explore like just interesting uh, things that like provide kind of unique opportunities for them that other people don't have. Of course, it's like it's somewhat hard to communicate that as, as we've mentioned on the on the show before, because of course we can't have like you know a priority path or like we, we can't list magician in India uh, anywhere on, on the site because that's like such an idiosyncratic opportunity. But yeah, that's a, I guess it is a common misunderstanding that people think that, that we kind of they, they feel like we want to pigeonhole them into like particular uh, common career tracks rather than uh, encouraging them to do things that are uh, particularly like uh, promising opportunities for them. Well, yeah. So you always have to weigh your like personal fit and comparative advantage against how good the path is in general. And if you have sufficiently high personal fit in a path, it can can outweigh the kind of that area of generally being less promising. We use this uh, term comparative advantage, which is a, a little bit jargony. I guess it's uh, comparative advantage is kind of about your relative goodness at, at something relative to the other people who are in your organization, say. So you could end up doing something which you're in some sense absolutely less good at, but you're like, you're filling some gap uh, relative to like what, what other people can, can do who you're trying to coordinate with. Yeah. And we have a whole, we have a whole um, article about comparative advantage to, to find it a bit more clearly. I think, uh, I guess another mistake that I sometimes see is uh, people giving too little weight to choosing the right problem to, to work on. If you ask them, they might think, well, working on, you know, one, one problem, problem A is like 10x more effective than working on problem B, kind of all else equal. But then they'll end up working on problem B uh, just because they like they managed to get a job in that sooner or they feel that they have somewhat uh, better personal fit for that, or maybe they just haven't spent that long thinking about it. Uh, and it feels like they're, they're potentially sacrificing a, a, lot of, a lot of gain there uh, if, if they actually you know, really research which problem uh, that they, they want to work on long-term and, and, and made a conscious decision about that. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to wrap our head around these massive differences in impact that might be possible. And you know, but this is one of the big motivations for 80,000 Hours is just like it seems like some options might just have more than like a hundred times impact more than another. And so that kind of means that say 10 years working on the more effective area could be equivalent to like a thousand years working on <laughs> the second, <laughs> the second tier. So like really, really huge differences. And yeah, sometimes it's, it's kind of easy to like maybe intellectually accept the case, but then when it comes down to specific options, kind of our intuition is more that like things are roughly similar. We actually did a survey of this where you asked people how much they thought charities differed in effectiveness in terms of mm. saving lives. And I think the difference was only 1.5. Yeah, it was like, yeah, really small differences. I think like, like people thought that the, the best charity versus the median charity work in the developing world, it was like maybe twice as effective. Whereas I guess we would think it's more like a hundred times or at least like tenfold. 
Exactly. Yeah. And this gets us to the whole idea of 80,000 hours where if you can just spend 1%, if you can make your career just 1% better, it's worth spending 800 hours doing that. Um, if you can make your career a hundred times better, it's, you know, worth almost spending the whole career just <laughs> <laughs> saving up for that last six months. <laughs> That's kind of how many times I've said that over the years. All right. So before we kind of get into the, into the body of the, of the key ideas article, maybe let's just start by kind of mapping out the process that at a very high level, we would recommend that people uh, generally follow if they want to have a, have a really high impact career. That, Cause that will kind of map out like the structure of the, of the conversation to come. Here's the very high level overview of the overall process. We generally guide people through when we're advising them on what their long-term plan should be and what their next step should be. Um, and it's also roughly this, the structure of the key ideas series itself uh, moves through things in this order. So the first question we encourage people to think about is the question of which global problems are most pressing and then which ones you want to work on. Once you've got that, then it's about coming up with uh, career options that might help you especially effectively address those problems. Um, so that's like figuring out key bottlenecks facing those issues and how you might resolve them. And then from there, you want to be trying to get a short list of promising long-term options together. So that's the kind of idea generation phase. Then we have a strategy section, which is then more about like, how do you narrow those down? And so really big question there is just which one's the best personal fit for you. Another big question is whether it's more effective to first gain career capital, will that accelerate your career more? Or should you just enter kind of directly into one of these long-term paths? And then finally, there's the section on decision-making. How do you actually figure out, once you've got a shortlist, what should your very next step be? And so there, key thing is to try to identify your key uncertainties about these different options, investigate them. And then we recommend that generally people take uh, what we call that upside option, which is the option that would, uh, that would be highest impact if, it, uh, if you perform towards the top end of your expectations. That said, doing that while having clear backup plans. And then finally, we roughly recommend that people review their career about once a year or whenever they face a major decision point. A little bit less often if you're more confident and a little bit more often if you're early career or you're more uncertain about what to do. And then the rest of the time, just focus on doing as well as you can in the, the option that you've chosen. All right. So that's a lot to digest, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll gradually work through each, each of those phases and kind of explain how we would, uh, would imagine that someone could do, could do a good job of them. All right. So the key ideas article kind of uh, starts with a very foundational question of uh, our moral views. So yeah, how would you kind of summarize the, the, the kind of key moral positions uh, that 80,000 hours takes that are, that are relevant to people's career decisions? So yeah, we start the key ideas series with, we just state some of the key values behind our advice. We don't really justify these things because that's that gets into a lot of complex debates in philosophy, but we just thought it's like important to try to uh, clarify these things and, and be transparent about, about our values. And the kind of question you can have in mind here is like, just what does it actually mean to make a difference? Uh, like how, what are we taking that project to mean? And then how does that then carry through into the rest of our advice? So yeah, the, we highlight a couple of key kind of principles on the key ideas page. So the first value we highlight is the idea of impartiality. And so we take 80,000 hours to be the project of trying to do good from an impartial perspective. And yeah, exactly how to define impartial is, again, a very tricky issue. Um, and it's debated about exactly how it should be defined. But very roughly, you could think of it as we want to treat everyone's interests equally. So that means we don't want to privilege uh, people based on their particular nation or social group or ethnicity, even like where they are in, in the world, even potentially what time they, they live in. There's a tricky issue then of like how do um, non-human animals fit into that? And yeah, we're unsure about exactly how their interests should be weighed. But again, we would, 
we would say like their interest should be counted to at least some degree, though we're unsure about the exact weighting. I guess like one uh, one approach to that would be that, uh, that their interest should count uh, to the degree that they're capable of having interests. So it's like you might think that like, yeah, different species like potentially have like different strengths of interest because they're like, yeah, because they're like designed differently. Um, that would be like one way of kind of reconciling impartiality without like giving the exact same weight to like a fly as a human. Yeah, though, like, like I say, this, th- those are all controversial. So yeah, we're trying to treat everyone's interest as equal. Then there's a question about like, you know, what are people's interests? Like in what way are we actually trying to help them from that perspective? And broadly, we say our, our kind of guess is that we should be roughly focusing on increasing welfare. By welfare, we just mean a very broad thing about like how good people's lives are, um, how like happy, long, fulfilling and so on their lives are and how much they can avoid uh, needless suffering. Again, there's lots of debates about exactly what welfare should consist of. Ultimately, does it mean satisfying people's preferences? Is it just a matter of people having more positive mental states than negative mental states? Uh, There's other views as well. We've actually found that uh, these questions don't actually seem to make that much difference to our choice of problem areas, which is the kind of more decision relevant thing that we'll come on to later. Of course, uh, like people are going to potentially uh, you know, value other things other than just like uh, welfare uh, impartially considered. Uh, but I guess you're saying like our, our career advice is going to be focused on that uh, because that's potentially something that like a very wide range of people uh, care about to, to, to some extent and will have as like one of their career goals. Exactly. Yeah, I think almost everyone cares about doing good in this like impartial way to some degree. Very simple toy example where you might see this is like, you know, if you could push a button and like it would cause a stranger to suffer most people would think, well, I, I shouldn't do that. Um, even though I've got like no particular attachment to that person, I don't know who they are. And that kind of shows that like, we do actually care a bit about the interests of strangers and you know, just people in general. And I think you know, also many people share an interest in welfare. Again, there could be many other things that matter, but all, all else equal, generally if people have better lives where they have, they're more fulfilled, they're more happy, and they have less suffering, then many people can get behind that as, as one important goal to push towards. Yeah. So like we say, we don't think that's like the only thing that matters, but it's um, an important goal. And it's also one where we think like, just given how the world is right now, they're just potentially, you know, due to technology and all the like amazing wealth that we find ourselves in and potentially the moment of history that we're in, our actions today actually can have these really big effects on long-term well-being of large numbers of people. And so it's also a particularly important factor to focus on just given how the world is right now. Okay, so that's impartiality. The second uh, part of our kind of moral uh, philosophy is long-termism, which is this like emerging set of like moral ideas. We've had like several episodes where we've discussed uh, long-termism in some detail and even like one episode that was over two hours, which was almost entirely focused on it. And even that didn't manage to like kind of consider all of the different like possible motivating reasons and uh, possible objections and the back and forth about that. So long-termism is like, it's pretty hard to boil down, but like one kind of possible one sentence description would be that basically the, the most important moral consequences of our actions are the impacts that they have like more than a hundred years into the future or possibly more than a thousand years into the future. Now I'll just try to kind of lay out how you could potentially get to a conclusion like that. The first observation would be that uh, like many uh, philosophical views imply that the welfare of people in the future is uh, at least an important consideration. It's not clear necessarily whether the welfare of people in the future is as important as the, uh, the welfare of a person today, but at least it should be given some weight. The second thing is to note that the future could be extremely long, so the universe is going to be around for a very long time, and also just the universe is extremely large. There's a lot of space, a lot of energy, a lot of matter uh, that could be converted into things that, that are valuable and that could support like many people living for, for a very long time. 
And potentially another thing is that the lives of people in the future could be a whole lot better than they are now in as much as like science and technology over the last 200 years has probably improved the, the welfare of people and that we might expect that that will continue for, for at least some period of time. And then the third thing uh, would be that there's something that there's things that we could potentially do, do today that could, uh, you know, improve the welfare of, of people who would be alive in the future. Uh, and that we could kind of have like somewhat predictable effects and that they would be like positive rather than just completely random. And like one way of demonstrating that might be like you could imagine that an asteroid, if an asteroid were, were heading to Earth uh, and it like hit, hit, hit Earth and then like everyone died, then there'd be like no people around in the future and that, that, that like their lives would just be uh, completely ended. Uh, and if we could prevent that from happening, say, then it would be clear that that would have like quite a persistent impact and could result in, you know, humanity surviving for hundreds, thousands, maybe even longer than that, uh, thousands of years more. Maybe one thing to emphasize is like, well, each of these three premises could could easily be wrong. Like maybe there won't be that many people in the future. Maybe we can't affect them. But the key thing is just that like, because there's at least some possibility that there could be so many people in the future and there's some possibility that our actions could affect them. Those two things mean that the argument kind of goes through. Um, and in particular, just because the stakes is potentially so large, it could uh, well be the, the dominating consideration. Yeah. So, so one kind of latent philosophical assumption that's going on here is the idea of expected value, that, that we focus on maximizing expected value, which is kind of the size of the reward times by the probability of getting it. So basically, we always think that if something is good and you've got like a 1% chance of getting it, it's twice as good if you have a 2% chance of getting it. Twice as likely is twice as good or twice as bad. Yeah. And then that's an important component of how, how we end up uh, with long-termism. Yeah. So here we've got a group that uh, in expectation kind of matters to some degree is like potentially extremely vast in number, like much more vast than the number of people uh, who are alive today. And we can potentially affect them through actions that we take now that will have kind of predictable consequences. Uh, and that could get potentially get you to this conclusion, long-termism, that the most important effects of our actions are those that affect things in the world in more than 100 years time. Of course, there's like many objections that one could potentially field. So people might say, well, actually, like people in uh, the long term future don't matter at all morally. They're like not moral, moral patients as far as we're concerned, which like conceivably could be true. But I think we think is like fairly unlikely and like not true in expectation. Probably like the, the most important philosophical position that holds this is called person affecting views. We're not going to cover that here, but you can read more about some of the reasons for and against those views in our article on, on long termism. And also you can see, our, uh, listen to our podcast with Toby Ord. Maybe even a, a better source is actually the, the podcast with uh, Hilary Graves uh, from the Global Priorities Institute. She's written this really uh, neat uh, summary paper about population ethics, which goes into different person affecting views, which I, which I guess kind of uh, much under the banner of uh, we're here about uh, making, uh, making people happy rather than making lots more happy people. And she discusses some of the, some of the pros and cons of them. And I guess uh, also why she, I suppose, uh, like us, ultimately doesn't find them to be the, the, the most plausible theory. Although I suppose they are, like, uh, yeah, as you said, among the most, uh, most popular uh, philosophical uh, views that, that people take, which I guess would, would be a big challenge for long-termism potentially. You might also think, well, it's just like so unlikely that we could survive into the future that in fact there like aren't going to be many people in the future. But that kind of just seems kind of empirically wrong. It seems like there is a decent chance that humanity could survive for just a very long time. There could be a whole lot of people. Maybe a, a third like more complicated objection that some people raise is just that, yes, we have like very big effects on the long-term future, but they're just so unpredictable uh, that it's like very hard for us to like improve how, how well the future goes because like it's just so chaotic and random that, uh, you know, you, one can't really make it better through any like deliberate actions that we take. Uh, and I think there's like something to be said for that. Uh, but again, kind of, there's a kind of expectation argument that like it's possible that our effects, the effects of our actions are just completely random, like whether they're positive or negative or neutral. But there's, I think there's like a reasonable chance that in fact, there are things that we can do that would make the future go better, like, you know, reduce the risk of a nuclear war. And, and, and we're going to actually try and 
consider specific examples in what, what covers, I think like the way to just assess that is just to consider specific proposals and like whether they seem convincing or not. Yeah. And I guess, especially we haven't been like looking for opportunities to do this for, for all that long. And it already seems that we already have some like pretty plausible things that we could change about the world today that would potentially make the long-term future go a whole lot better. And then there's like, there's even more like philosophical and practical objections to all of this, which we don't have time to, to go through today, as I, as, as I said, but that kind of gives a like a, a really quick synopsis of like what, what long-termism is. Yeah. I mean, one other big motivating idea in terms of why to prioritize taking this perspective is uh, the neglectedness case. Our existing like political systems and economic systems really seem to be optimizing a lot for the interests of people who are presently alive because, you know, we're the people who have the votes, we're the people who have the money. And so therefore, like, are driving what happens in the world. Whereas like the interests of future generations are like often entirely neglected. But if we imagine that like everyone in all of history had a vote, then they would all like massively outvote presently alive people um, and kind of have a big say over, of, over what happens. And because they're being hugely neglected, that means we should actually expect there to be like pretty effective ways of, of helping people who exist in the future. So yeah, I was making the argument there's like, there's a big scale of the issue there because there's like so many uh, and that it's tractable that there might be things that we could do now that could change the long term. And you're completely right. It's like, it's like very neglected by our economic system, which like most, mostly makes kind of consumer goods for people who are around today. It's neglected by uh, like government because uh, people who don't exist yet can't vote, can't influence them. And I guess it's like, it's, it seems like it's even neglected kind of by the nonprofit or like civil society or charitable foundations, I think in part just because like many of them haven't been like, this issue this hasn't is a new been idea, brought, yeah. it's kind of a new idea. So it hasn't been brought to people's attention. So there's potentially a lot of low hanging fruit that's been left there by other people. Yeah, this position only really got staked out in the last couple of decades by philosophers, kind of Derek Parfit was a big figure in that. And then Nick Bostrom and now, now several other philosophers at Oxford and, and other places. So like overall, you might think of long-termism as the idea that like, when we consider the question of how to make a difference, we should just simplify that down to the question of how can we best help the long-term future? And we're not entirely sure that perspective is correct, but we're kind of convinced enough by the arguments and also because that perspective is so neglected that this is one of the most promising areas to explore and potentially work on for someone who wants to maximize their impacts from an impartial perspective. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's hard to find really high leverage opportunities to, to improve the world that like someone isn't already taking. Uh, you, to some extent, sometimes you have to make kind of bets that uh, like people are making a mistake about something or that like a not a universally accepted view uh, might be right. And I guess in terms of like the bets that we could make that are on like a view that isn't universally accepted, that seemed like especially promising and like especially uh, kind of action guiding that would give us, you know, concrete ideas for uh, things that people could do with their career to have a really big impact, kind of long-termism stood out as seeming like unusually likely to be something that's uh, much more widely accepted in the future than, than it is today. And it could be a framework that would allow us to find like many opportunities for, for our readers to, to have a big impact. One other common um, objection people give to working on long-termism is just the idea that it's like, it's very hard to get motivated by it because it's such an abstract idea. And I think that that was true for many of us as well when we first got interested in this area. But um, I think like over time kind of thinking about more of the specific problems that we can address, it's become more motivating. One big thing for me was uh, recently reading Daniel Ellsberg's book all about nuclear war, the kind of level of insanity that is exhibited there where the present generation is kind of just taking this massive gamble with the whole future where we've set up this system by which with almost no notice, we could just like all go up in flames due to this like kind of crazy machine that we've built. And, you know, by doing that, we would not only potentially cause this disaster in the present generation, but we might actually put like all of history at risk. Yeah, all of these people who have no say, who are just being completely screwed over by us uh, because of our own kind of incompetence or selfishness. Another thing was 
there's a recent paper um, about the Fermi paradox that Anders Sandberg explained on the podcast, where he actually kind of argues that there's quite a good chance that our current civilization is the only sentient life in the universe. And again, just the idea that like the universe might be entirely empty except for this one planet. And then again, we're like kind of, um, there's all these ways in which we're just like playing roulette with that entire future. I found really motivating. Yeah, yeah. I'm somewhat motivated by this like image of like a totally unnecessary nuclear war and like all of the like totally unnecessary destruction that that would entail. But I think I'm I'm also kind of motivated on a day to day basis like by like a more positive vision of, of the future. So I, I sometimes imagine like imagine that you could like transport someone in time from 1500 to today. I think they'll just be like, this world is incredible. There's like so many people, and you've got like laptops and like medicine and like television <laughs> and like all of these drugs that like. Um, make you make, like improve your health so much like science you understand so much about the universe that we didn't understand and then I, I just think that if we like were able to transport ourselves like 500 years into the future and like civilization manages to kind of stay on track and continue advancing in the same way that we have in the past we would like similarly just be astonished by like how like incredibly amazing like, humanity's accomplishments are and like it, it probably like how amazingly good their good their lives are because they'll just have like so much more capability to to, to make their lives so uh, amazing and to like get rid of all of the problems that we have to worry about today uh, and it just seems so sad for us to like, just through our short-sightedness, kind of snuff out this potentially uh, a, a, a amazing future when it's like, when it's completely unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, one response to that is you know, there are some ways in which uh, the world has become worse in the last couple of hundred years, where you know factory farming is one of the examples we've talked about before. I guess I just wonder what what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it is possible that like on balance, the world actually has has gotten worse in some ways. Like if you imagine, it could be that like yeah, the suffering on factory farms is so severe as to outweigh the the, the benefits to people. I guess uh, if, if you took that view, then um, you might well just want to focus on like um, making sure that those things don't continue into the future. And I, and I do think that work to like eliminate factory farming or to make sure that factory farming definitely doesn't persist forever is uh, is, is really valuable. Uh, on, the, on the factory farming case specifically, I uh, think that it's like very unlikely that it will, will persist forever because it just seems like it's going to be like it's a it's a way of making food that is going to become like we can already see that it might well become technologically obsolete within our lifetimes. Let alone you know over five hundred or a thousand years when we'll be able to make food in like in just in just so many better ways. And just more generally, it seems like as people have become like more empowered to shape the world with, with like more and more flexibility because we just have more technology, uh, by and large, they get rid of these like uh, really negative side effects uh, when, when they can. Yeah, there's ways that that might not happen, which is, for example, a reason to kind of spread good moral values so that people just like would find it intolerable to have, uh, you know, this like suffering created uh, for like small benefits uh, to, the, to them in the future. So that would be like another possible long-termist approach would be trying to kind of shape people's values so that, uh, yeah, the, the future goes better. I'll try to like, yeah, eliminate the possibility of these like really negative things existing uh, for, for like very long periods of time. Yeah, I think it's just important to note that the case for long-termism doesn't rely on the future necessarily being on this like good trajectory where it's getting better and better. The key thing is just ultimately like, could there be either like much better futures or much worse futures and might there be something we could do about it? And like in that case, then you should be a long-termist. It might affect what long-termist projects you want to work on rather than like whether to take a long-termist perspective in the first place. Yeah, it's interesting with the factory farm case. I guess like, so someone who was like specifically not a long-termist and was worried about factory farming might think we have to like shrink factory farming uh, right now. I think someone who's taking a long-termist perspective on that uh, might be like, we have to make sure that we don't get locked into a situation where factory farming persists forever, which, uh, or like doesn't persist for, you know, like thousands of years in the future, which might lead to like kind of a slightly different, uh, slightly different edge on like how, how, how you would tackle that problem. Although it could ultimately cash out, you know, just trying to make, <laughs> make Beyond Burgers uh, really amazing. 
Just going back to motivation, I think one, one other just quick point in terms of what actually motivates me day to day, there's a lot of things like writing this specific article is useful or like advising this person was motivating because I like help them uh, figure out their career decision. And I think a lot of jobs are like that. Even if your long-term aims are quite abstract, often there's like much more concrete things day to day that like also provide a type of motivation, even if you'll kind of like never see the beneficiaries of, of your actions. All right, that was a bit of a diversion there into like what, what actually motivates us to, to take an interest in uh, long-termism on a, on a kind of practical level. Um, but let's move on to kind of the, the third aspect of uh, kind of our, our ethical views, uh, which is moral uncertainty and, and moderation. How would you describe that one? Yeah, I mean, this is actually, this is actually just a kind of bunch of different things pushed together. But just the general idea is um, we don't think you should just kind of be extremist about one moral position and one set of values. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. You know, one is just the kind of pragmatic reason that often people who are extremists about their values, it seems to actually just like cause a bunch of harm. It doesn't actually like lead to the most, the best consequences in the long term. You know, if you look more generally at the track record of people who've just really tried to like push one value system at the expense of others, it doesn't look like a great track record. So there's just a kind of like, well, this isn't actually the best way to go about things argument. There's also a kind of coordination trade argument, uh, like because we want to be able to work with other people who maybe don't exactly share our values, but have a bunch of overlap or even people who just have different values. Uh, and so, again, it's better to kind of make some concessions to what, what is valued in general rather than just, again, trying to like basically screw other people at every turn just to like slightly get in a, like an edge on, on what you care about. And then there's actual moral uncertainty itself, which was covered in the podcast with Will McCaskill. Um, you know, just we're actually very uncertain about ultimately what matters. And so we think that suggests we should consider a variety of different perspectives when it comes to what's valuable and then try and pursue actions that seem reasonable on a balance of perspectives, you know, at least ones that don't seem terribly wrong on, on, on one perspective. This is an interesting one because there's like so many different considerations pointing in this direction that almost each seem like very strong and like potentially quite decisive. And then kind of you throw them all together and it seems like a pretty robust general conclusion. Well, yeah, I mean, figuring out exactly what moral uncertainty implies is very challenging, but um, yeah, we kind of just boil it down to, it seems like in general, there's an argument for moderation. And I think one big thing is just like not doing things that seem like clearly wrong from a common sense point of view, even if like your kind of intellectual case for impact backs them up. Yeah, that kind of like don't do crazy things principle seems pretty reasonable. Yeah. So we've got this tendency probably that uh, people don't take enough account of like philosophical uncertainty about like, yeah, these meta issues. Then we've got also that I think humans are like not inclined to take full account of all the empirical uncertainty about like all of the things that they might not know that that might be relevant. And we're also probably not inclined to take the disagreement of other of other people in the world as seriously enough. We kind of tend to just go with our with our gut judgments. So even if other people who seem as informed and smart as us disagree, we don't like go, well, someone else disagrees with me. So basically I should just like put equal weight on their view as, as on my own. Well, that's, yeah, that's almost a fourth argument, it seems like, which is uh, something along the lines of like, people aren't as like epistemically humble as they should be. So to, you need to kind of correct in that direction a bit more by being like a bit more humble than intuitively you might think. Yeah. And then there's this issue of like, if you're just completely dogmatic about your own views and not interested in compromising with the rest of the world, then well, the rest of the world will hate you and potentially like <laughs> try to stop you, try to thwart you because they're going to view you as kind of a hostile entity. And then maybe there's even another one, which is like, we want to create a culture internally within among like 80,000 hours and the people who listen to our advice. And I guess the effective altruism community, which we're, which we're somewhat a part of, uh, where people coordinate well and get along with one another and, and are friendly rather than kind of backstabbing at every opportunity when they, when they think that it's advantageous to them. 
Yeah, I lump that under the pragmatic reasons. Yeah. Um, that's one mechanism by which you get them. So yeah, moral uncertainty and modesty and reasonableness seem uh, seem pretty robust conclusions. <laughs> are there any kind of philosophical schools that you think uh, are, are at odds with with these ideas that where it's just like clear that they wouldn't be interested in our advice because they, they disagree too deeply? I think when people just debate morality in general, you always focus on the kind of interesting disagreements between positions and people don't spend nearly as much time kind of talking about like, well, we all agree that like, if you can save a life with little cost to yourself, that's a good thing to do. And if you can save two lives for like a similar cost, then that's like even better thing to do. But then that's kind of all you need to accept to think that like you should take a lot of the kind of things we're going to cover super seriously. And yeah, it's just because these like big differences and impact on intuitive, we tend to in practice not focus on them very much, but on an intellectual level, we can all agree they matter. I guess actually um, another topic that we haven't taken a view on and which doesn't seem terribly decision relevant is kind of demandingness or like whether it's obligatory to help people or whether it's just a good thing to do. Uh, and I guess there's disagreement on the team and also it doesn't seem to really affect what we what we should say or or even really what, what people ought to do. No, I agree. But uh, we'll come on to later that question and actually think uh, exactly how demanding you think morality is turns out to like not be quite as an important decision as uh, it first looks. Okay, so that kind of uh, tackles the, the really broad uh, philosophy. Uh, let's narrow down to, to the next section, which is what are actually the most uh, pressing problems to work on, which, which as we've said, we, we think is a very important issue and potentially something that, that people don't, don't place as much weight on as, the, as they ought to. Yeah, what, what, do, what do you talk about in that section? Yeah, so again, so we're coming at this from a long-termist perspective. So then the question is, you know, which issues are most crucial to address today in order to help the long-term future. And I mean, this is really an emerging area of research, like I said, so we're not clear what the answers are going to be. But kind of the general um, view that people are coalescing on is basically what you want to look for is these crucial moments in history where it might be possible to change how the long-term future turns out. Uh, Phil Trammell has recently been calling these hinge moments, um, though you should actually think of them more as like, hinge periods because it's not like a specific moment other people hate that no nomenclature some people have suggested it could should be called like pivotality I think <laughs> <laughs> God, I, I don't like that i think critical junctures is one i've heard in history okay yeah but the idea is like most things probably just kind of like wash out in the long term we're not really sure what persistent effects they're going to have but then it seems like there are certain categories of things where there's a kind of element of lock-in or irreversibility. And there's a basically a point in history where something could uh, really go one way or the other way um, and be like that for a very long time. And that's like what you're looking for in a hinge. Um, and so then from that, there's basically, we end up with two camps of long-termists. The first camp, I'm going to call them the like targeted existential risk camp. And they're people who think, well, there are these things which look like they might be hinges, basically they're potential existential risks. And so that's something that could dramatically decrease the value of the future indefinitely. So as a, a really clear example would be, you know, if, if an asteroid struck and uh, ended civilization, then obviously the value of the future is now zero from then on, in, unless, you know, life evolves uh, again on Earth or something like that. But, you know, it's at least a very long, uh, long-term setback probably. And so... Yeah, if you think there might be some chance of an existential risk happening in our lifetime, that seems like it could easily be the crucial thing to work on from a long-termist perspective. And so in how we prioritize causes, um, we think issues around AI safety, some of those might cause existential risks. Then secondly, global catastrophic bio-risks. Thirdly, nuclear war. And fourth, uh, climate tail risks. Those are our kind of areas that we've selected within this category where it seems like maybe in the next couple of decades, there's important work to be done reducing those risks. Then the second camp of people 
is a, quite a diverse camp, but basically in this camp, either you think, well, we don't know what the hinge of history is yet. Maybe it's those issues, but maybe there's other issues that are even more important. Or maybe, you know, you think you do know what the hinge of history is, but it maybe is going to happen a very long time in the future. So you've got these two dimensions, you, you're very uncertain and the hinge might be a, a long way off. And so there's not really a name for this category yet. One name that's being kind of used tongue in cheek is that that's the, the boring long-termists. Um, and the boringness comes from the fact that you're saying now is not an especially important moment in history. Um, now is just like any other moment. And so we've no reason to think like a, there's a key hinge moment on our doorstep. Whereas like the people who are really focused on AI, that's that's more saying like, you know, well, the hinge might well be here. It, it's It's AI. And so uh, that's where the name comes from. But, you know, people also kind of call it patient long-termism or, or maybe broad long-termism. Hopefully we'll settle on a good name soon. And so, yeah, within that camp, there's then three main categories of problems that people work on or issues that people work on. So if you're just really not sure what the hinge of history is, then one option obviously is to just do more research and try and find that hinge. And so that leads to global priorities research being a, a key area within that. And like just in general, even another way to think global priorities research is important is that we might also just be wrong about this whole long-termism thing. And so for either reason, you might think just doing more research into these big picture questions is really important. So that's a, that's the, the first one. The second one is you could do some kind of capacity building. So you could basically help grow like the resources of people who care about the long-term future, such that when this hinge moment does come up in the future, we're in a better position to deal with it. And that's why we kind of see the effects of altruism community and building that is really important. You know, if we were convinced that it was, say, all about AI or all about biorisk, then we would just probably focus on building the biorisk community or the AI safety community. But the, the point is that we might be wrong about what the key problem is. And so by building this community of people who are interested in working on a wide range of issues and, and flexibly switching, we're able to like get there to be more people interested in working on whatever the most important problem turns out to be in the future. There's also other ways you could build capacity. One option is just to try to like save money as and, and grow that as much as possible. If you think like interest rates are kind of set by the rest of everyone else and everyone else is very impatient, they kind of want to get money to benefit themselves fairly soon. And so that makes in interest rates quite high. But if you're just happy to wait and play the long game, you can just save your money and gradually um, compound it faster than the world economy grows. And so thereby have like more and more influence over time. And then, you know, in a thousand years, your your foundation will be able to have a big impact on the long-term future. Yeah, if it's still around. <laughs> exactly. So pretty unclear whether that's a practical proposal, but there could be less extreme versions of that that, that are sensible. You could also just kind of focus on building your own career capital or say, building a network of people in policy who are interested in long-termism so that maybe just in like 30 year time period or something, there's like the, these ideas are much more uh, represented among people who might be making the decisions that are relevant to these things. Yeah. And then the third category within boring long-termism is what gets called broad interventions. And so these are just things to work on that will help society navigate lots of different future challenges, whether that's future existential risks or other types of hinges. And so the problem we've written about online in this category before is improving institutional decision-making, where just the idea is like many of these challenges will be navigated by big institutions in society. And if you can help them be better at making complex decisions, then we've got a better chance of uh, overcoming these challenges, whatever they turn out to be. 
But yeah, this is also our greatest area of uncertainty about which problems we might recommend. In particular, a lot of people interested in boring long-termism think there's going to be some other promising areas vaguely in the area of how to improve international coordination, how to improve international governance, how to reduce the risk of great power conflict. And the basic idea there is just like a lot of these big global challenges really seem to boil down to coordination problems between major powers. And if you can just get those countries somehow working together better on issues like climate change, but also like all, all, all the other issues we talk about, then you're kind of making the world generally more robust to these challenges. So yeah, I've, I've been talking about like the, the two camps, boring long-termism and like targeted accentual risk-focused long-termism. I just want to clarify that this is actually a spectrum of, of options and everyone kind of agrees that like both types of activities are important. The interesting question is more about exactly where the balance should be within the community between these these two different things. And I suppose actually also kind of what portfolio we want, because presumably we don't want to go go all in on like either one of these strategies. There's uh, there's good reasons to you know have a, have a, have a bit of a, a range of different approaches and uh, exactly yeah both kind of to hedge our bets, and so we can also learn about uh, how 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 well these different uh, options are playing out. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't actually say it's about hedging bets because that makes it sound like it's about risk aversion, but it's about like each approach has some diminishing returns, so you want to do like a little bit of each, and then as you said, it's also about the exploration point where. We're uncertain about how good each approach is. So trying them out lets us learn that. And then we can maybe like reevaluate which ones to focus on later. You've done a really good job there kind of mapping out the spectrum from people who think that we live at a special moment where you might be able to have an outsized influence and we kind of know what the nature of the hinge is and how we might be able to influence it. To on the other side, people think the current time is unremarkable. There'll, there'll be like important moments in history when we can affect uh, the direction that things go, but there'll be at some point in the future and we don't know what that'll look like. So instead we have to kind of prepare for them in some general way or some much more flexible way. My, my impression is that you've become like quite a bit more excited about the the, the, the second category, the more bo- yeah, boring long-termism uh, lately. I guess uh, perhaps I'm, I'm a little bit more skeptical of that category and uh, maybe think, yeah, we don't want to like jump too quickly towards uh, all of those things. Because So some of the challenges I think they face are like, let's say you're trying to yeah do, do a broad intervention where you improve decision-making in, in the world as a whole. That's like difficult even within one organization. There's like a million organizations in the world and it's like very hard to know kind of what, yeah, if you want to improve decision-making, like who among where that you could end up having a lot of influence, but if it isn't in kind of the particular, the right people or the right places uh, for what, what, what turns out to be the pivotal, uh, you know, or the critical juncture uh, moment in future, then it's kind of can, can all be wasted and that can potentially result in you dissipating your energy a lot. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with that. I think within the second camp, the stuff I'm most excited about is more the like very targeted community building work and global priorities research. And so we actually kind of recommend them on a slight tier above. And then the things like improving institutional decision-making in general, like a little bit less convinced that that's the highest priority at the margin. Though, obviously, as, as with always, if you had a particularly strong comparative advantage in that area, then I think it would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, there are some some exceptions to that where it does seem like there's groups that we don't know exactly how they'll end up being pivotal, but there's a good chance that there will be, like relations between the US and China. It's pretty obvious that that going badly could could really uh, send humanity off track. And so even if we don't know exactly how they're going to end up in conflict or how yeah, how that could be avoided, building capacity to try to do that in future seems like it's uh, it's a pretty, pretty decent bet. Yeah, those broad interventions is like our area of biggest uncertainty. We don't really have strong concrete suggestions right now, but it, it's the area I'd most like to see more research done into to try to uncover maybe a more niche thing in there that turns out to be really good. It does seem like quite a few people are getting interested in that and starting to starting to explore that space. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get a bit more clarity on it over, over the next couple of years, especially, I guess, people going into global priorities research might be able to uh, yeah, bring, some, bring some attention to it. I think partly we need more research into the area. 
I mean, it's also interesting to consider, maybe it'd be really helpful just to have people exploring these paths and trying to like figure out good things to do within them. You know, that's quite a, it's quite a bold career move in a way to just try to like explore a new problem area by yourself. But um, obviously if you succeed, then you might uncover a thing that like many other people in the community could go and do and have a big multiplier on your impact. A really difficult question here that uh, I would love to know the answer to is like, how big are the differences in effectiveness of having an extra person or an extra million dollars going towards uh, these these different problem areas? Yeah, one problem rather than another. I think, yeah, as we are saying, uh, I think people's t- typical intuition is that, you know, working on the right problem might make you two or three times more effective than, than another one. Well, I would say the typical advice is just, there's no way to compare between different issues in the world. Just do what you're most interested in, do what you're most passionate about. Yeah. And if you're really passionate about recycling, like work on that. If you're really passionate about positively shaping the development of AI, <laughs> then do that one, yeah. um, as, as many people are. Or a mix. You know, <laughs> so yeah, okay. So maybe the typical advice is just don't even consider it. But um, then I suppose there's other people who think about it who might say, well, the differences are like modest. So I guess maybe they think these personal fit uh, issues uh, are, are more important. Exactly. And that, that's why then following your interests, following your passion comes in, because that's in theory, a proxy for personal fit. Yeah. Whereas I think we're kind of trying to figure out like, is it a 10x difference or a 100x difference, a 1000x difference, a 10,000x difference? I mean, we're pretty much totally the opposite to the common advice in a way, because we actually think probably your choice of issue is the most important question to get right. Yeah. And it's it's a bit frustrating because it's uh, it's hard to prove this because we don't really uh, get the measurements of like how much good did these did groups do, especially in this long-termist stuff where we actually won't see whether, well, we'll probably never know even if we could see the fullness of history because we won't have a counterfactual. Uh, we won't know whether these things helped. But especially from where we stand today, where they're trying to have influences in the very long term, it's it's impossible to really say with with confidence, like with the effect of like any particular person or, or project right now. We kind of just have to uh, have a model of the world and try to like guess uh, how, how much impact they're having, or use like broader theoretical considerations uh, to, to yeah try try to go on that. But I suppose one reason that I think there probably are really massive differences in effectiveness between different problems is that we use this kind of importance, tractability, and neglected, neglectedness framework. We kind of break down how effective it is to work on a problem into like how big is the scale of the problem. So like how big would be the benefit if you could fix some fraction of it? Yeah, though, and then for us that actually boils down to just like how much does it help the long term future? Yeah, how much does it increase the expected value of the long-term future. And then you've got like how many resources are going into working on this problem, where I think we have a pretty strong uh, intuition that on average, you get uh, logarithmically declining returns to, to working on a problem, at least like once you're talking about like serious money or serious numbers of people going into working on them. And, and so, yeah. so that means like each doubling of resources is probably equally useful. And this is because you kind of run out of useful ways to solve a problem um, over time. And yeah, there's quite a bit of empirical evidence that many areas uh, you get these like kind of logarithmic returns, like I think, for instance, with Moore's Law, they've actually roughly the resources going into that type of research has kind of doubled consistently in order to maintain the constant uh, growth rate. Yeah, actually, across uh, scientific research in general, it seems like we've been just piling more and more researchers onto scientific questions and uh, getting like basically less and less return, probably because it's getting more, the questions are getting more progressively more difficult. So then we've got this kind of third factor, tractability or solvability, where I guess we probably think that the, the the differences there are somewhat smaller, maybe than other people think, or at least like sm- smaller than the other two factors. But it's like very hard to kind of measure that. Um, so so we're perhaps a little bit unsure about it. But anyway, if you just like naively plug in numbers uh, for these things uh, across lots of different problems, and it seems like you get ludicrous differences, like ten thousand x differences between uh, like the problems that we recommend and the problems that many people work on. Yeah, maybe it's just worth kind of working that through just very quickly, in that like. Taking this long-term perspective with many issues, we're just like not really sure whether they have uh, like what effects they have on the long-term future. 
Whereas like some of the things we've identified, such as like, if you can reduce an existential risk, that seems like it has a massive um, benefits for the long-term future. Although it's hard to quantify, there seems to be like some really big difference in scale there. And then when you look at neglectedness, again, it's very hard to measure neglectedness precisely. One kind of guide is just looking at the amount of money flowing into different areas. And so just to kind of look at that, US education has around a trillion dollars a year spent on it to an order of magnitude. Climate change has a couple of hundred billion dollars spent on it um, internationally. But it seems there that like climate change is something like 10 times more neglected than US education as an area, just measured with the total amount of resources going into it. But then like issues like global catastrophic bio-risks and AI safety research, they only have tens of millions of dollars per year spent on them. And so I think that means that then you're looking at about a factor of 10,000 difference in the resources. Uh, at least the kind of direct resources going into them right now in the short term. And then I guess some people would want to say, well, some of those things are so much harder to solve than others. It might be like 10,000 times harder to solve. But I suppose, yeah, I, I don't think that. And I think watching people try to go and pioneer these areas, it kind of vindicated that view that these things were like not as hard to solve as, as, as people imagine, because they do just seem to be getting traction as you would in kind of solving any other practical problem. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't seem like it's uh, 10,000 times harder to make progress on, on AI safety than on climate change. Yeah. In fact, actually, it seems, if anything, easier because the field is so much smaller, which is exactly what you would expect from neglectedness. So if you just plug in these numbers naively, you get these like very large seeming multiples. But then there's like a whole bunch of factors which I guess kind of attenuate that conclusion or, or, or should make us doubt it. One is just that it's like, it's a very strong and surprising conclusion on its face. So kind of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And here we've kind of offered like theoretical considerations, like really, really broad measurements. Uh, and so it would make sense to, to be reluctant to draw such a strong conclusion from evidence that doesn't seem super compelling. There is a debate about whether we should even find it surprising, which is the issue of like, how strong should our priors be about like how big these differences should be? And like on one school of thought, it's kind of just like, if you think there's a factor of 100,000 difference, that means you think, say, like one person working on the most effective area has the impact of 100,000 people working on like more mainstream problem areas. And that just seem maybe just think that seems implausible. Like one person can't easily have such an outsized impact on the world. So we should be skeptical of it. But then there's kind of another side of things where it's just like, well, very little effort is going into helping the long-term future because all of our political system, um, general people's interests is all focused on very short timescales. And so we might just think that society is not doing a very good job at helping improve the long-term future. And that would just mean that um, there might be amazing opportunities lying around that just aren't being taken. And so for someone who then really does, does care about helping the long-term future, they're then able to have way more impact than normal from a long-termist point of view. And so this gets in, this is called the issue of like kind of market efficiency for, for doing good. Is it an efficient market? In which case it's like hard to have outsized impact or is it just wildly inefficient? In which case we shouldn't be surprised that we find really big differences. Yeah, I guess if you just kind of look around and see that nobody is trying to improve the long-term future in the way that we're conceiving of it, and uh, then it's like, does seem a lot less surprising that you could get a 10,000 fold difference in the effectiveness of things that people are doing because there aren't people crowding into the areas where they could have a large impact because no one's even thinking about it. Yeah. But I guess, that, yeah, there's other reasons to, to be a little bit more skeptical. So, so one is that you might get like flow over benefits. So someone who's working on a project that's like not the most important one in our view, it might have kind of side effects that benefit the things that we think are most important. So for example, if a hundred people go and work on global poverty, they might kind of solve that problem to like, to some extent, and this will cause like someone else to decide not to work on that problem because it seems like more handled and then go work on a different issue. Once you get to this point where there are people who might work on either issue, and they're like kind of unsure about which one to do. 
then it seems like it starts to get quite hard to get massive differences if they're like influenced by everyone else. Maybe this happens on quite a large scale because like Bill Gates has said he thinks AI safety is an important issue, but he's kind of not working on it himself because like he's already chosen global health as his focus and he's going to stick with that. But maybe if just like no one was doing anything on AI safety at all, Gates would like switch into it. Yeah, or alternatively, you could imagine, because Gates is kind of doing the global poverty stuff, that's going to prompt some other billionaire to go and work on global catastrophic risks instead. Exactly, yeah. And even if that just happens to a tiny, tiny degree, like one part in a thousand of the resources fungi like that, then it make, it kind of caps the difference in effectiveness between the two things at a factor of a thousand. Yeah, so funging is this like slightly strange term of art that people use in effective altruism to refer to kind of like spillover, like flowover effects uh, when like an action that you take changes the behavior of other people. So a kind of classic case would be if like I donate money to a charity and then that uses up their kind of room for funding and then another donor who would have supported them instead doesn't give to that organization but gives to a different one. And in a sense, what my donation has actually caused is the funding of this like second organization that this other donor then gave to as a result of my donation. So it like, can sometimes be like, a little bit hard to control at like actually the effect of your actions because of how it uh, changes other people's actions. And you get the same kind of phenomenon potentially where if uh, you take a job, uh, then it's possible that, that someone else would have taken that job if you hadn't taken it. And so in fact, what you're causing is like the spillover of like the job that they go and take instead. Yeah. And we would say that that second person has funged you and the, the job that you took. So you can imagine the donation case, if there's two donors supporting a charity, uh, the charity has a budget of $100, each charity gives $50. If you were to donate even more, say you would donate $60 instead, but then if the other donor just reduced their donation, so the overall charity was still at $100, then that donor has funged your donation because they've kind of made it that you have no impact on the charity. Yeah, it comes from the term of fungibility, which describes uh, kind of objects that are all completely replaceable for one another, just like $1 bill is the same as another uh, dollar bill. But uh, yeah, anyway, we'll move on from that. Yeah, I guess there's an OpenPhil post where they talk about some of the challenges that OpenPhil and GiveWell have faced with this. Another thing is, uh, even if, like, other than resources funding, you can also kind of have side effects in a project uh, that, that have a positive effect on the long-term future, even if it wasn't designed for that. So you might think, say, working on just like US education in general is like not terribly effective because lots of people are trying to do it and it seems like relatively difficult to, to, to fix the problems that are remaining. But uh, even if it's like relatively ineffective, it probably, you know, improving general like wisdom among students, like making people like smarter and more informed probably has some like diffuse, like positive effect on the, on the long-term future which would kind of set again, like if you think it's like a hundredth as effective on the long-term future by that measure, then that kind of sets a, an upper bound on how, on the ratio of the effectiveness of working on that versus something that's more targeted. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is a bit of a digression, but like lots of things potentially help uh, improve the long-term future. And in a way it actually makes the scope of everyday actions much larger. So like just having a kid, maybe that just like increases the population in expectation by a, a, like a slight fraction for a really long time. And so you actually are having this big positive impact, though that one would be more of like a speed up in character rather than a trajectory change. And yeah. so probably is like dominated by quite a large degree by reduction in existential risk. Whereas with something like education, maybe that does actually also reduce existential risk a bit. Though again, it's actually, it's, it wouldn't be too surprising to me if it was like only a kind of, it was a factor of 10,000 less levered because um, it's just so undirected at the particular hinges that we think are most important. Yeah, most, most things probably do help the long-term future, but you might still have very large differences between them, I think, on that argument. Well, I guess, the, I mean, that's a somewhat open question is like, yeah, do these actions generally help? So you can imagine like some people think that having more children is like bad for the long-term future because it like creates more problems in the short term before we can fix them. And so even if it's positive because meaning that there's more people in the short run effect, like if it has a very, very slight effect on like the probability of extinction or catastrophe, then that, that would end up swamping that. 
Yeah, exactly. No, but I, I mean, I think you only need one kind of funging argument like the one we mentioned to already think that there's a cap in uh, the difference in potential effectiveness. I mean, we can also throw into this like empirical and like moral uncertainty about these things, which uh, it's like very hard to know exactly how to quantify that. Exactly. Like, and in, th- in theory, that should be taken into account in your assessment of scale. But then it's, it's very hard to do all these things in practice. So you probably want to correct for them later. Another thing is that it's exceedingly hard to know how actually neglected problems are. So it's like sometimes we say, oh, well, you know, only $10 million is being spent on this. So you know, only $10 million has been spent on it so far. But that's like can be very misleading for two reasons. One is that in the past, like lots of money has been spent solving like problems in general. And very often some of that like subtly, indirectly works on, on this other problem. So, for example, like not very much money specifically works on like preventing aging. Uh, there's, there's relatively few labs that call themselves, you know, anti-aging labs. But then everyone who's been working on biomedical research in general, you know, improving chemistry, improving our understanding of biology has to some extent like indirectly been helping us or like bringing us closer to the point where we can tackle that problem directly. And then it's like very hard to know how to quantify all of that. And that's so that's like in the past. And then in the future, it also seems like issues that are very pressing, yeah, re- really, really burning issues where it's like the scale is really big and no one's working on it. There's a tendency, like at least at the moment, or it seems like there's some tendency for like resources to be directed towards those. So if something's particularly neglected now, it may not be so neglected in the future. And then if you consider kind of on net, like across all of time, yeah. is, it, is it neglected? Well, well, yeah, what I guess what you actually care about is how many resources get spent on a hinge before that hinge happens. Right, yeah, before that hinge. <laughs> and, and, so, and we don't know when the hinge yeah. exactly will be. So but so then you're kind of then trying to though predict like what resources are going to be spent on that thing in the future as well. And so, yeah, this all means that just those like naive numbers that I said earlier, I probably, you know, that's not the correct way of thinking about it. Probably the differences are less severe than the kind of very direct numbers that I mentioned. But then, you know, there were such large differences in neglectedness on the naive measure, say a factor of 10,000. And it still expects there to be large differences, even once we more uh, take into account these, these factors, uh, these attenuating factors. I think there's also just a very strong argument that we should expect um, helping future generations to be neglected, as, as I mentioned earlier. Because I guess like, yeah, the market doesn't really reward it very well. Voters don't really reward it for the government. Uh, it's just like, we can just directly observe that not that many people are thinking about it. There's an old Paul Cristiano blog post on our website where he talks about like, if most people only care about a thing like 1% as much as you care about it, you should expect to be able to have roughly like 100 times as much impact by focusing on it. Yeah, because another another thing is that we're often focused on kind of uh, tail risks uh, and like unlikely events. And for those, uh, well, it seems like just like humans are like very bad at thinking about those because they weren't so important, like in the in the environment in which we evolved. And it's just like also just very difficult for like any any kind of any any mind to, to to really wrap their heads around. Yeah, though I've never been quite convinced by the like heuristics and biases argument for why X risks should be neglected because we know in other cases people like, like terrorism way or... overreact to like small probabilities of bad things happening. So I think you have to yeah you have to make a more detailed argument about the nature of the risks. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just the case that like with unlikely things, we just like are all over the place. It's like not obvious that we spend that's too true, much or yeah. too little. It's just that we like... Sometimes we spend way too much, yeah, sometimes way sometimes, too little. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So just so, an argument against efficiency. Yeah, and so it's an argument that like if you thought about it a lot and like really tried to estimate the likelihood of these things concretely, then it's like maybe you could get a pretty big edge there. Yeah, that makes sense. So then the question is just like, what what is our overall thought on how big the differences in scale are? We like tried to survey different, some kind of leaders of organizations in the effect altruism community uh, last year. And we asked them just at the current margin, if you had $1 to donate, how would you trade off between donations to the EA long-term fund and the EA global health fund? And the median response to that was they, people thought the uh, long-term fund was about a factor of 20 more effective, though with huge differences in opinions um, around an order of magnitude at each side of that. 
Yeah. And so then that suggests that they thought on average it was about a, a factor of 20 difference. Um, I should say that those groups of people were probably selected for being more interested in long-termism. So that, that maybe has a bias in, in favor of the long-termist direction. But then, yeah, my guess is that many, we didn't actually ask this question, but I would guess that say, if you just picked a random like median US focused charity, compared it to the EA Global Health Fund, people would think that the, the Global Health Fund was about a factor of a hundred times more effective which is kind of based on the beneficiaries being a hundred times poorer. Also based on say, I think GiveWell now says that they think like their top charities tend to um, kind of have a five or 10 X multiplier compared to just giving the cash. And so that maybe gets you over to a factor of a hundred difference. And so then that, if we put those two super speculative figures together, you'd roughly get to a factor of 2000 difference between a median US charity and the EA long-term fund. Um, and that would be like a rough estimate of the total spread. Though, as I say, like that's that's very controversial. And that's maybe one of the biggest uncertainties within our ranking is just like, how does say nuclear security compare to global catastrophic bio-risks? Is it that actually there's like only quite a slight difference between them or maybe is, is bio-risk actually like 10X or even 100X more effective? Either way, yeah, even if there was only a factor of 100 difference in effectiveness between issues, that would be an absolutely crucial consideration for choosing a career because, again, it would be like in one year you could achieve as much as 100 years of work in this other, this other area, at least if you kind of treat all those years as equally effective. And so really, really important to take that seriously. As we come on to like your personal fit is also really important and can vary a lot between different areas. And so sometimes personal fit can, like, can outweigh the differences in different areas. And it could be better to kind of do an area that you think is a bit less important in general um, at the margin, but where you have a really unusual personal fit with it. But I think we also see people who kind of intellectually agree that maybe there are these large differences, but then when it kind of comes to actually making decisions, they kind of treat all these areas as like roughly similar which is kind of how our intuitions work. Our intuitions do not tackle these massive differences in uh, effectiveness very well at all. And so you really have to try to like resist that tendency and, and like it can help to try and put specific numbers on things and um, try and think it through. All right. Is there anything that we uh, haven't covered already before we move on from this issue of like, yeah, what are the world's most pressing problems? Yeah. So we've covered how like we see um, our view of which problems are most pressing. Um, and we've been really like explaining how that's driven by long-termism and the, the other philosophical positions we mentioned earlier. But I would just say that I think actually many people with slightly different focuses could get behind many of these issues, even if they're not, say, as focused on long-termism as us. I think a wide variety of moral positions can agree that nuclear war would be very bad. <laughs> um, yeah. And also actually nuclear security seems like still pretty neglected compared to many more conventional issues. And so you know, we talk about climate change way more than we talk about the risk of nuclear war, even though we could literally all go up in flames, like at any moment, it's actually like a very big problem. Yeah. So um, you don't need to be into this, like a very like full on long-termism to think maybe that could be one of the most pressing problems to work on. Likewise, um, the whole kind of idea of global priorities research and building the effects of altruism community is that like, we are very unsure about which problem is most pressing. And so there's room for people with all kinds of different values and backgrounds to work together on that project of figuring out which problems are most pressing, building a community that just wants to work on whichever issues turn out to be most um, important based on based on the arguments. 
Yeah, no, every so often we kind of do a back of the envelope calculation of like, yeah, how much would it cost to save a life by trying to prevent nuclear war or doing other things to reduce catastrophic risks? Like that is of the, of the present of people alive now. And it seems like it's kind of competitive with other opportunities to save life through, the, you know, really cheap healthcare and things like that. But that's, it's, it's very, very speculative, obviously. Yeah, uh, probably depends a lot on the, uh, the specific uh, accidental risk as well. Yeah, like whether you can get a lot of leverage there. All right, uh, let's push on. So we've talked about like what problems uh, we might suggest that people uh, work on solving. Uh, the next step might be to think about like what are the kind of the methods that you can use to get a lot of leverage in the world to have a lot of influence in order to like just to solve a large fraction of these problems. Um, yeah, uh, what, what do we talk about in that section? Yeah, so the, the next section is now getting into concretely which careers uh, could you actually take to help with these issues. Like supposing you roughly share our view of global priorities, you at least you'd want to consider working on some of these issues, then what might you actually do to, to help with them? And I should just kind of say as a way of caveat, like people really focus a lot on our particular ranking of things, but these are really just like ways to help you brainstorm things that might be high impact. Then you need to then run it through our like kind of full decision process, consider like your individual circumstances, your personal fears, other options that might be really promising, but aren't on our list and to actually come to your individual decision. We're not providing a kind of all considered these are the best careers for everyone list, um, yeah. which unfortunately not possible. Yeah. <laughs> you're all too different. If only you're all like identical widgets, someone could do that, but sadly. So yeah, these are just like ways to brainstorm ideas. Um, and so we start with what we have, uh, we call our five categories. These are kind of broad, very broad categories that can help you generate options. Um, and I, yeah, I'm not going to go through them all in detail, but just kind of add a few, like I think more like mistakes people make when they're thinking about these areas. So the first one is just trying to find a really good nonprofit that's addressing one of these problems and working at that. Ideally, a nonprofit that is a bit talent constrained as well, um, rather than just only very heavily funding constrained. And yeah, we list a lot of, um, we're trying to list more and more organizations on our job board. I think one thing here is like, it's very easy to focus on what gets called the like effective altruism organizations, which are the ones that kind of have an official EA stamp on them. But actually, like, there's many, many nonprofits addressing some of these issues, and they can all uh, be potentially good to work at as well. So, would encourage people to think a bit broader about options within within that category. And we're trying to make the the list of jobs on the job board broader. And we're now up to almost 300 listed positions, and we're we're pushing to get that wider still in the coming months. The second one is uh, trying to do some kind of relevant graduate study, and then go into some uh, work on a research question that's relevant. So one of the problems we've covered going down the grad school route is is good if you might have good fit for it, though you'll want to be quite careful about which area you choose to go into. And so some of the areas that we think are kind of most generally exciting are uh, like machine learning and economics, because they're both like economics is very relevant to global priorities research, as well as other areas. Machine learning is obviously very relevant to AI safety. But then another nice thing about graduate studies in those areas is they also give you a lot of general backup options. Like you're not just punting your career on this one, uh, this one path. But then, yeah, lo lots of other areas that are worth considering bioengineering, synthetic biology, all the kind of stuff in that area because of its focus with um, bio risks. And then there's all kinds of policy relevant issues that could be very useful for policy careers. There's like security studies, um, even law, and then going to policy like uh, international relations. Um, again, economics, but more with that focus. Yeah, war studies, it gets called it Kings, Kings in London. Yeah, Masters of Public Policy. And so, yeah, you can do all this research that's relevant more to like either the broad long-termist interventions or to taking a policy approach to AI safety or to, to, to AI or to bio-risk. 
so yeah, those, those are some of the areas that um, we've been most excited about recently within research. The third one then maybe is the one I want to highlight the most, which is government and policy careers uh, in roles that are relevant to these different problems we've covered. And I think this is the area that maybe is still, even though we've been banging on about it for a while, the most neglected by our readers and one which I think really a lot more people could seriously consider maybe making applications to uh, than currently do. And also seems like one of the biggest needs in the community of people addressing these issues and where there's like a lot of roles that might be very high impact. I think partly one problem that's stopped more people going into these areas is that they, it seems very vague uh, what, what to do in this area. But like one, one thing is just like in order to get started, there's actually a couple of very concrete ways to get started. One is um, think tank internships and research positions. And we've got a profile about those. In the US, you've got joining a political campaign and you can often just do that pretty much straight from undergraduate. There's trying to work as a congressional staffer, and then there's doing graduate study in a relevant area. In the US as well, it's pretty common to do a master's of public policy and then go into policy from that, also do a law degree. And so these, I call these the kind of like entry policy positions, and they're just things that kind of generally establish you, get you a network, and then you can go from them into like many different positions. Oh, and the, the other one is you can just try to get directly into like the executive branch or the White House um, and just get positions in those straight away. Sometimes you can kind of leap ahead more quickly through these like accelerator programs. So those are kind of how you'd establish yourself. Another big misconception we come across is like people think you have to be a real people person in order to work in policy. But actually, there's a, just a really wide range of roles in this area. And there's definitely a lot of roles for more kind of research oriented people who aren't just people like with really good social skills. It's not, all, it's not all kissing babies. <laughs> Some are yeah. just shuffling paper. <laughs> there are obviously lots of roles where it is really important to have good social skills. Um, but yeah, you don't necessarily have to. Another big thing is like people don't realize that you can just enter a lot of these roles directly from undergraduate. So you can just try to make a round of applications initially and then if that doesn't work, then you can go to graduate school or some other type of career capital and try again later. But then, yeah, you don't need to have a policy degree. We sometimes find people who like have already got a PhD, but then they think they need to do a master's of public policy in order to work in policy. But actually, if you've got a PhD, you can just go straight into policy positions. In fact, you don't even need the PhD. And so, yeah, I think maybe one thing we were speculating is going on here is just like after you've just done six or seven years doing this very narrow PhD thing, it's very hard to imagine that someone would just let you loose and kind of like setting policy and like figuring that out. But, you know, that is actually how the world goes sometimes. It is odd, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um. One other though, caveat about policy is it, it is easy to, probably more easier than average to accidentally make things worse in policy. And we're going to come on to doing accidental harm later in the episode. Okay, so fourth path. <laughs> yeah, uh, so there we've got direct work, uh, research and uh, policy and government. Um, yeah. yeah, fourth one. The fourth one is just consider if you already have a strong skill, then obviously consider how you might be able to apply that to one of the most pressing uh, most pressing problems. And that's just kind of a, a bit of a catch-all. Like our, our categories are most relevant to people who are early at their career and they have a lot of flexibility over what they end up doing. If you already have some very well-developed skill, it's harder for us to give general advice, but there may well be a great way to apply that to one of these issues. And so if you're in that category, unfortunately you're gonna have to do a bit, a bit more work to go and meet people in the problem area that you're focused on and try and ask them like what could you do with 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 the skills that you have 
This is a nice example of, I think, during, during the Apollo crisis, it turned out that anthropologists were really important because they kind of understood burial practices and how you might be able to shift burial practices to reduce the transmission of Ebola, which is like pretty random. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think anthropology is going to be like the, the top thing to study to, 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 <laughs> to have help with bio-risk. Yeah, yeah, or to, yeah, to help with bio-risk. But yeah, as it turned out, like sometimes just having an expert in it, you, maybe you want to have a few around in, in all kinds of different areas because you, you don't know what the future holds. Yeah, that's just a nice example of how a wide variety of skills can be applied to these these pressing problems and um it's also an illustration of how like people interested in long-termism and just effective altruism more broadly we really need there to be people who share those that kind of approach but also really understand all the different academic disciplines ultimately that might be applicable i mean yeah maybe like medieval poetry or something it's like a bit harder to see how that's going to turn out to be the crucial thing but yeah um, the future's unpredictable but not quite that unpredictable (laughs) yeah but then but then there's still a very wide range of things that need are needed and you know one thing that was has i think been on some people at the global priorities institute mind is that there's just very few people who have a a strong history background who are interested in effective altruism but actually a lot of um when we come when we try and study long-termism Often you really want to be looking at like historical analogs or there's, there's questions like, could the industrial revolution have gone differently? There's questions about like, has welfare gone up or down over time? And these are like basically questions in history that are really interesting and useful, but I haven't found anyone to study them. And so that's just like one example of like uh, an area that's not kind of normally considered like a classic thing that we want lots of people to do, but it'd be really great if there were some people doing, doing that path. Yeah. So uh, what about earning to give? Yeah. So then we have that as the fifth category. And so I like to think of earning to give as like kind of deliberately earning more than you would have and then using that to donate more. So you don't necessarily have to be in a super high earning career. Like anyone can earn to give to some degree by like choosing a higher earning option and donating it. And yeah, the key thing here is just like money is always useful to um, help the most pressing problems. Even if you're not sure how to use money right now, you can like always save money and grow it and have and have more later. And then when opportunities do arise, you can use it. But actually, like, I think, you know, there are just great places for donors to, to give right now. And if you're not sure about doing your own research, you can donate to the EA long-term fund or one of the other funds. And so, yeah, I mean, I think earning to give is still an interesting option because it's a way for anyone to convert their skills into, well, resources that are working on the world's most pressing problems. Yeah, if you're going to f- follow that option, then I'd say, like, also try to do it in a path that gets you good career capital so that you, you do also have the option of switching later. Yeah, one of the reasons why we highlight it a bit less than we did in the past is that over the last, say, five years, there has been a lot more money going into some of these um, long-termist focus areas, especially um, from the Open Philanthropy Project. And that has created a bit of a like kind of overhang where it seems like really key bottleneck is um, basically people able to do kind of like research, entrepreneurship, policy within these pressing areas and, and slightly less so money. Though, again, having said that, there are still um, uses for additional money. For instance, the Open Philanthropy Project often only wants to fund about half of the budget of an organization because they don't want that org to have to just only depend on them. Um, And so that means that you at least need um, people to match the Open Philanthropy Project uh, one-to-one. I guess other comments with uh, earning to give is that if this idea of kind of yeah, saving and investing money for a very long time kind of pans out as uh, being, a, being a really good method, uh, at least at some point that, that we should kind of switch to doing that, then, uh, then earning to give is going to look a bunch better. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's quite hard to compound human capital. You can kind of do it by growing a community and then hoping that like the community will kind of carry forward the values after you die. But like generally, most people's career capital drops to zero <laughs> at the end. Yeah. Um, whereas like money can um, be saved and used after your death. And 
So if you think the key hinge moment is like going to be after your death, then that could be another argument for running to give. Um, though we're getting like pretty speculative yeah. territory at this point. <laughs> Uh, I guess also we just like don't know what the future will hold. It seems like at the moment these problems are like, well, they're a lot less fun and constrained than they were five years ago. But it's, And it's possible that in five years' time, like money will look uh, more important than it, than it does right now. But we, we could be in kind of a temporary period where uh, money is like less the bottleneck. I mean, yeah, just the other point is like with all of these things, you have to consider your personal fit. And so if you're like unusually good fit with earning to give compared to your other options, then that could well be the, the top thing for you. Another one that kind of uh, didn't make this list and is a bit conspicuous is uh, advocacy. What, what were the reasons for that? Yeah, I mean, well, we should maybe say what we mean by advocacy in a kind of career context. I more mean trying to get into jobs where you have a public platform of some kind, such as being a journalist or working at a campaigning organization and then using that to promote important ideas. I think like that can be very high impact, but it's like a bit harder to make a general recommendation like that, partly just because it's like very difficult to actually do that. And then another reason is just... Uh, I think advocacy is one of the areas where it's like easiest to accidentally cause harm. And that's that's kind of because like once an idea is out there, it's very hard to unwind it. And like first impressions are really important. And so it's very easy to kind of like do a bunch of advocacy, but it's like a bit worse than it could have been done otherwise. And then you've like actually set set the cause back. So we didn't want to just make that a kind of like very general recommendation to people. Yeah, I guess I think other reasons are that it seems especially hard to figure out what the call to action is in some of these problems that we care a lot about. If, if we're worried about like, yeah, risk from new technologies, it's like, what is the mass campaign that you're running to try to get people to to, to take action? We, we don't yet know what we want you know, a large number of people to do. So it seems like if you're going to be doing advocacy, it's going to be probably have to be fairly targeted. Yeah. And that's a big, that's a big change in our advice. Like if you're focused on global health, say, uh, it seems much more obvious that you just want, you know, you want people to like be in favor of international aid. Probably if lots of people, millions of people donate 1% of their income, that's like a really um, like major way of helping with that issue. And so like having people earn to give and do advocacy and mass mass outreach seems much more useful. Whereas it's much harder to see exactly how mass outreach is the key bottleneck for something like AI safety right now. It's more in a question of just like figuring out what the hell to do at all. Yeah. I guess it's a bit ironic for us to say that given what we're doing exactly right now, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of like at least, yeah, something that's like reasonably mass Well, advocacy, I don't know if this is mass advocacy, like yeah. five hour long podcasts about <laughs> <laughs> philosophy and yeah, um, yeah, maybe yeah, a little bit more niche. Yeah. yeah. It's like, if you listen to hundreds of hours of podcast content, you might be able to like work out what to do with your career differently. Yeah. It's not exactly just, uh, you know, we want everyone to like donate a bit to against malaria foundation it's much more complicated to work out yeah so you raised the issue of um the conclusion about kind of what method you want to use like varies a lot depending on what problem you might be focused on so if you're focused on poverty then earning to give maybe looks much better or like mass advocacy does uh, or like earning to give because it's like there's obvious like obvious things you can do that seem really effective that can just absorb tons of funding uh, like even if exactly. it's just like cash transfers to people in in, in dire poverty the top give well charities also have not sure exactly what the funding gap is now but it's like around 100 million maybe maybe more and they, they think that they could find a bunch more if they did more research which is what they've just started doing and then if you're trying to eliminate factory farming i guess probably i actually think the the best thing to do is probably going to get into these like clean meat or like plant-based meat businesses or become you know a scientific researcher focused on on, on how to make those products really good uh, but there's also obviously opportunities in kind of mass moral advocacy to try to get people to to change their values and maybe worry about that issue more and that the, the message there seems like a lot less fragile uh it seems like yeah torturing yeah. pigs is bad <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> don't so. do it Okay, so that's the discussion of like broader methods. Let's get it, get more concrete and talk about like specific paths that people can take to, to, to use these methods to do good. Well, yeah, I mean, I would frame it slightly differently where 
the five categories we've just considered. The idea is those are very broad and hopefully like everyone can generate like some options that are in those five categories. Then we have secondly, the, what we call the priority paths. And these are kind of some of the areas that we're like very most excited about, but then they also tend to be like the most difficult ones to take. Basically the message there is like, you know, if you might be a good fit for one of these priority paths, then it's like often one of the top things to consider though. Again, even then you still should compare it to other options. So yeah, we have this list of about 10 paths. Uh, I'm not going to recap them all now, just maybe some comments about like how our views have changed on these over, over the last few years. Right now we actually list at the top, they're not really ranked, but we do have at the very top AI policy. And that's an area that I'd say we'd actually, we've doubled down on in the last year or so. Recently, we released um, a big guide to um, US AI policy careers. I think there's still a lot of room for more people to go into. I have a pretty wide range of roles and that's all laid out in that guide. Uh, an area that we rank a little bit lower down the list than uh, one or two years ago is um, operations management. In that, like, I think there's actually been a big success there where we uh, released a bunch of content about operations management last year and people actually really responded to that. And um, a bunch of people went and took jobs in these positions, such as uh, Habiba, who I mentioned at the very, at the very start. Uh, we actually also noticed that it was easier for people to come from outside the community and fill these positions than we had thought. So like we have a great new director of operations at CEA called Josh Axford, who was working at a tech startup in an operations role and, and went in. The Open Philanthropy Project actually hired the, the head of operations, the COO of, of the Clinton campaign. So a pretty high powered uh, hire there. So there's there's less open positions than there, there was um, a year ago. So it seems a little bit less pressing than then. Having said that, we still have it on the list and there's definitely going to be a, a long-term need for people in this path. Like if you think in general, for every kind of like five or 10 staff you have, you need at least one operations management person. So that just has to scale up with the rest of the community. Otherwise it's going to be a big bottleneck. And um, yeah, we still often see people kind of a bit like maybe prejudiced against this path where sometimes we come across people who like think that they're just kind of generally smart. So they must be able to go into like, a management position within operations management right away, but actually like it's a very challenging skill in and of itself. And you, you generally need to have a bit of experience and, and learn that particular skill. And yeah, we really need in the long term people to specialize in, in this kind of general function. Yeah, that raises this general problem that kind of category of roles that's bleeding for people that's desperate for people right now, like might not be that way in a couple of years time or in 10 or 20 years time. And that's just, it's extremely difficult for people, including us to, to anticipate exactly how that's going to go. Yeah, we, we do try to kind of estimate the like room for talent in different parts. But yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to communicate. Like we think it's a bit less pressing than last year, but still very, very pressing. <laughs> or another one is like, oh, it's really pressing now. We think it won't be as much in the future, but only because lots of you will read this and take the advice. So then it becomes a little bit circular. Well, that, that that's the whole problem as well. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to flag that some of the things in that old article we wrote about operations management aren't quite as current, but we still list it in the priority paths. Yeah. Any other priority paths you want to comment on specifically? Well, I think the most interesting other category to discuss would be like other things we've considered adding, but haven't uh, written up yet. So there's a number of things here. I think one interesting one is something like nonprofit entrepreneurship. And I definitely think that's a big bottleneck facing the community and that like there is funding around to build more organizations, but we kind of lack the entrepreneurs able to like actually develop the concept and make it into something shovel ready and then raise funding for it. One reason why we haven't listed it is just because um, 
it seems like it's very difficult and there's not many people who have both entrepreneurial experience and a lot of background in the, in the specific problem area. I think it's very hard to just go into one of these complex areas like AI safety and just start a new organization. That's like often a bad idea. You need to instead build up your experience within that particular problem area for several years first and then found the organization later. But if you're listening to that and you might be one of those people, you've worked in one of these problem areas for a while and you're interested in starting something, uh, then we'd very likely be interested to talk to you. And so I'd encourage you to apply to advising. It's very difficult to give general advice because it just depends so much on the specific idea, whether it's um, worth doing or not. But we'd be keen to kind of try and help you make introductions or help you find funding for that kind of option. So yeah, that's, that's entrepreneurship. Another kind of area of priority paths might just be if we do end up having like international coordination or reducing great power conflict as a problem area, then there might be some priority paths associated with that. That will then just turn out on like whatever seems kind of most promising ways to, to work on those issues. You know, maybe that's just going to work in like, well, maybe research around international governance or maybe like working at international organizations or working in the foreign service, trying to like improve relations between different countries. So yeah, like I say, that's very uncertain at the minute what might what might be there, but we're definitely thinking about it. We've also considered kind of adding a kind of catch-all extra option to this, which is just like some other way of dealing with our priority problems that we aren't going to be able to think of because it's very specific to you, but does seem like really, really valuable. Yeah, totally. I mean, like I was saying, people tend to treat the list as comprehensive, but it's like really just a list of like ideas to consider. And so maybe we need to make it like really, really salient that, yeah, there's actually a couple of different categories of things here. One category of things is like, a thing that might be a priority path, but we just haven't had time to investigate yet. And if you think you found something like that, you could consider just kind of trying to pioneer that area, then telling us about it. And if we're convinced, we'll be able to like have a podcast about it or write about it and maybe get like more people doing it. So it's kind of a high risk thing to do, but maybe potentially much more high impact. Another category is just there's certain things that maybe it'd be really great if just like a couple of people did them. So with priority paths, we tend to only want to recommend things that like quite a lot of people could do because otherwise our advice would like maybe immediately become obsolete. But like something like we talked about earlier was like being like a global priorities researcher, but who's a historian seems like it'd be great to have like a couple of those, but it's maybe not a kind of general enough recommendation that we'd want to make it a priority path. Yeah. Another category is just like, maybe you have a very strong comparative advantage in something which like normally it wouldn't be a good idea to do. That's more like the magician example where we're never going to make like magician a priority path. But um, if you are like unusually uh, talented in that area or like successful in that area, then it could be worth doing. Yeah. Maybe you could find a way to kind of spin that into something uh, really useful later on. Just, yeah, just, just that, through your like general successfulness. Exactly. That, that's, that gets into like career capital really. Yeah. I mean, then the other area is like other ways to tackle AI. And so uh, recently there was a really interesting post on the EA forum by Claire Zabel and Luke Mulhauser about information security as a, a key need. Yeah, we should put up a link to that. We were considering making that a priority path. Another thing has been uh, working in AI hardware. Some people think that AI hardware might turn out to be the biggest bottleneck and just having people who really, really understand that deeply and work in the relevant companies might be super important. And then also like there was a talk recently at EAG by... Um, the Charlotte DeepMind arguing that there's a real need for people to do kind of non-technical roles at the top AI organizations, such as operations, but also things like communications, kind of like assistant roles. And although you're not working directly on AI technical safety research, there might be many, many roles for people where it's it's still great if they really care about long-termism and maybe able to use, use the roles to help. 
so what do we have to say in terms of priority paths for people who are kind of already more mid-career, someone who's like listening to the show, but is more like 40 and might, might find it hard to envisage switching into these, uh, into these paths wholesale? Yeah, so we do have a very rough article that we link to on the Key Ideas series about like if you already have kind of well-developed skills in an area, then what might be the highest impact thing for you? In general, it's very hard to give general advice, So, but it would come back to try and meet people in the problem area and ask them about how you might be able to apply your skills to help the area. I think that's basically what that comes down to. There's lots of areas where it would be great to have more experienced people in the community. I think management skills has been a thing that's been very highlighted in our most recent survey of skill needs. Another thing is like anyone with experience of government and policy could be really, really useful in particular. The, the other thing I wanted to end on is, yeah, if none of these options really seem like a good fit for you, then then what do you do? How do you come up with even more options? And um, we do try to link to a kind of general brainstorming process that you can work through to help come up with more options yourself. Also lots of brainstorming questions to kind of act as a checklist to think through. And then the kind of other category of things is like, you can always, if you're not sure how to contribute right now, just focus on building generally useful career capital. And then in a few years, maybe an opportunity will come up. You can also always contribute by donating. And maybe you can also always contribute by doing a little bit of like outreach to your friends. Maybe you don't have like lots of knowledge of AI, but maybe you know someone who does work in that industry and you could actually have an impact by doing that. That was slightly covered in the kind of Cass Sunstein podcast that we had recently where he pointed out that by helping to like subtly shift social norms, some people can just have a really big impact. And so maybe even just by kind of mentioning that you think we should care more about future generations does actually maybe have like more impact than you might think because it could help move us towards a tipping point where that's just a very like mainstream idea in the future. Yeah. Do, do you want to comment all on how people can try to figure out what is the key bottleneck in the, in the problem that they're focused on? It seems like typically people in these different problem areas often have pretty strong intuitions about like what's what's really the rate limiting step for them. I mean, I think it is difficult to have general rules of thumb. It often just comes down to trying to like understand that area and think about like what things are most delaying progress at the time. I think we do try to sketch some general rules of thumb in the high impact careers article. And so one thing is just like, if a problem is um, a very new and niche area, then probably one of the top bottlenecks is just getting some kind of proof of concept that there's actually useful stuff to do in this area. And so recently kind of like AI technical safety has like more got to this point where there have been actual papers trying to just solve technical challenges in, in AI safety. And that's kind of shown that that's a thing. And now like more researchers getting mobilized behind it. Whereas like AI strategy, which is kind of all the other messy political and social issues around AI, that's like at a more early stage where there's kind of not very clearly defined issues at all, um, what to work on. And so it seems like there the key bottleneck is something more like it's, it's been called disentanglement research in one post. And that's more just kind of like defining the key questions in, in the area in the first place. Once an area is more established, then often the bottleneck more just becomes like kind of a more mass thing where, well, you can kind of think like with ending malaria, there's just like, there's a kind of logistics bottleneck of like actually getting these these solutions rolled out on the ground. And then there's a funding bottleneck. And it's more just a question of like getting more and more resources going into those those two big bottlenecks. All right, let's move on from talking about the priority path to uh, career strategy, uh, which I guess uh, under the heading, we have a whole lot of different considerations like career capital, 
how much to explore uh, personal fit and how to weigh that against other things as well as avoiding harm and I guess weighing your career against uh, like personal things like you know, how much do you enjoy it and, and the sacrifices that you're willing to make and not willing to make. Maybe the, the first and the most significant one is uh, career capital. Yeah, what do we mean by career capital uh, and what's our overall take on it? Yeah, so in, in this section, we cover all these strategic considerations that are kind of cross-cutting and determine which options are best at different times in your career. And one of those is career capital. By that, we mean the skills, connections, credentials that you get from a job, which puts you in a better position to make an impact in the future. One common misunderstanding here is by career capital, uh, we mean just the credentials that you get. So like having a degree or a formal qualification, but actually we mean like anything that puts you in a better position. So that's um, the people you know, um, it's like the skills you've learned, personal development, your like productivity habits, all, all of those things can go under that banner. Yeah, and uh, I guess how important do we think it is uh, as against you know having a having an impact right away or other other factors that might cause you to choose a job? Yeah, so kind of in abstract, it seems like it could be really important. One way of seeing that is just for most people in their first couple of jobs, especially the first couple of years of work, they probably just don't have a particularly big impact. We sometimes like see people who want to just like have a huge impact right away, but normally your impact is going to increase significantly in your first couple of jobs, and kind of taking it from another angle, uh, we can see that if you look over a very long term, it seems like people get uh, much more productive through their careers. And there's a bunch of different strands of evidence for this. One is uh, studies of, uh, so expert performers, so like top researchers, typically finds that they, depending on the field, hit the peak productivity, um, often age 40 to 50. And so that kind of suggests that they've been, you know, increasing their output for several decades and presumably like a, a top researcher who's at the top of their game is like having much more output than they say were as a graduate that same person was as a graduate student another strand of evidence is like people's income typically more than doubles over their course of career or kind of more tending to the effects of altruism community a third strand of evidence is uh in our surveys when we asked people at organizations in the community to place a dollar value on um, different hires they'd made for senior hires compared to junior hires, they often gave figures that were about three times higher. But often there's only like not that many years of experience separating those those uh, two positions, which kind of suggests that people have managed to like triple their impact uh, in that early part of their career. Yeah, I guess another way of seeing it is just that there's some really valuable positions, say like being a senior academic or you know being an elected politician, which you just can't get when you're in your early twenties, almost never. That you need to do things like get a PhD to even have the, the the possibility of getting those kinds of high impact roles. Yeah, so that's another way to see that career capital can be important is that sometimes uh, doing a certain thing just opens up an option that just wasn't an option before. Um, such as like an academic career just isn't really an option if you don't have a PhD. And so if you think that's really good, then um, you can kind of clearly increase your impact significantly if you thought that option was significantly better than what you could have done otherwise. Yeah, I guess another thing is that even if you're only in, in some fundamental sense, like a couple of times more productive, uh, if you're a couple of times more productive, you might get access to 10 or 100 or 1000 times as many resources or like you'd be able to manage many, many more people than you would otherwise, because you're kind of your position in terms of your ability relative to others is going to be much higher. And so that will allow you to kind of amplify uh, the gains in the in your actual kind of skill level to have an even more impact. Yeah, yeah, that, that could be right. Another another point is that career capital is um, one thing is it's also clear is that it's more important the earlier you are in your career. That's for at least two reasons. One is that there's probably some diminishing returns from career capital. So um, as you gain more, it becomes uh, less useful. Though actually, I guess Rob's argument just there was like almost an argument for increasing returns from career capital. So that's that's a little bit unclear. 
I think the point that's more clear is just the earlier you get career capital, the longer you have to use it. Um, so like obviously learning a new skill age 64, and then you only have one more year to use that skill is much less useful than learning it at the start of your career and then having 40 years to use it. So for that reason, it means that younger people should um, focus significantly more on career capital than late career people. Yeah, I guess uh, we said earlier that there are times when people do have their greatest impact when they're in their 20s or relatively early in their career, if they're kind of in the right place at the right time and just have an opportunity to do something that people, other people haven't seen, uh, for example. This is like famous you know, startup examples of that. Um, so we, do, so we yeah. don't want people to ignore that possibility and like always focus on career capital. But it's kind of like that, that's, that's most likely the, the default for most graduates is that they're going it's, it's to they still have to kind of build their skills and build, build everything that they need to have a bigger impact later on. Yeah, there's definitely important exceptions. I think actually within the effective altruism community, there's in particular, partly just because it's a young community, there's been lots of people who have had a big contribution early on. Yeah. All right. So it's, if not the biggest consideration early in your career, then it's probably at least one of the one of the top considerations. So the million dollar question, I guess, is which are actually the best uh, options for career capital, which is something we've uh, been trying to answer over the last couple of years. And I guess we're not completely sure about, but we, we have a bunch of uh, pretty promising ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where the question gets a lot more complicated because to some degree, uh, as we're going to kind of try and sketch out, just focusing on what has a big impact in the long run also gets you career capital indirectly. So it's actually kind of, it can be a bit unclear, even though career capital could be really important in an abstract sense, how much you actually need to focus on it as a separate factor. So in terms of uh, the best options, I guess a lot of uh, an option that a lot of people have in mind, especially I guess because they're focusing on the um, credentialing aspect of career capital, uh, is uh, to go into management consulting or some other kind of corporate, uh, pre- prestigious corporate job, um, which is going to be like widely recognized as having skilled you up uh, to some extent. Yeah, like like also investment banking, professional services, law, things like that. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we've talked about uh, in terms of career capital uh, in the past and, and still do today. I guess, where, where do we come down on, on how that uh, trades off against other options and, you know, for how many people might it be the best option? Yeah, so I think it probably got emphasized a little bit too much in our advice and um, kind of because it's like a memorable thing that people are already uh, interested in as an option, people probably end up focusing on it too much after reading our advice. And yeah, we released a, an article that goes into this in a lot more depth recently that is linked to from the Key idea series. But overall, we would say it's like a good option and it's worth many people considering, but there's often um, an even better option for getting into the, the problem areas and the priority paths that we think are highest impacts right now. And the main way we've arrived at that conclusion is just looking at these areas and then trying to think through like what are the most effective routes into them um, by like speaking into people in the areas. And then it really seems like um, management consulting is the most direct route into any of them. Yeah, I guess a bunch of people have gone into consulting uh, who were involved with the effective altruism community over the years. And it seems like they're, they're doing well, their careers are progressing well, but they don't seem to have come out like well ahead of people who just like, you know, went into, into direct roles straight out. And I suppose that's, that's made us a little bit more cautious about suggesting that people kind of uh, yeah, do a detour into, into prestigious corporate jobs. Yeah, it seems like that when they come back, they kind of end up in a position that's like similarly senior to what they would have if they'd been working within these nonprofits the whole time. Um, obviously, it's it's hard to tell, but at least it seems like they haven't obviously got greatly better or, on the other hand, significantly worse career capital than they would have got. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we should point out that uh, there isn't room in these organizations for kind of everyone to go and get a job in those immediately. So for people who can't get into those things, uh, going and getting career capital in something in some kind of prestigious corporate job might be extremely sensible. Uh, but I suppose if you're, if you're choosing between the two, it's not obvious that the prestigious corporate job gets you gets you far ahead. Uh, but I guess, so setting setting that aside, uh, which options then do seem best for, you know, progressing your career as quickly as possible in the in the priority paths? Yeah, so this uh, depends a bunch on your skill set. 
Like if you're a bit more on the kind of like research and analytical end and you can afford it, then graduate school is often an attractive option, um, especially master's. And that's just because um, having a master's in a relevant area just often does seem to be useful in many of the paths that we most recommend, especially because it's, it's very helpful in lots of policy careers. And also sometimes just having that specific expertise is, uh, uh, is useful as well. Yeah, so I guess in terms of going to graduate school, uh, some options that stand out are kind of security studies, uh, international relations, public policy. I guess there's some, some subfields yeah, so of that, biology. Yeah, that cluster is like the policy careers cluster. Yeah, and then there's some, some subfields of biology, uh, which seem pretty, pretty useful. Which is relevant, relevant to bio-risk. Yeah, and then there's, I, I guess, economics and uh, history, I guess, within the social sciences, if you count history as a social science. Well, yeah, so... The ideal subjects for graduate school are ones that also give you lots of backup options outside of academia. And I think like economics and machine learning and some other kind of more like applied mathematical subjects really stand out on that front. Whereas like something like history, um, it would be great if there was more people who studied history within a community of readers, though, you know, doing a history PhD doesn't give you that many great backup options outside of academia. So that would be more one for like a smaller number of people who have really good personal fit with that area to consider. Yeah, I guess if if you're an analytical person and considering going to grad school, uh, another option might be going and working in a think tank or some other kind of direct, perhaps more junior uh, policy role. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, if we compare that to management consulting, well, you're getting a kind of general purpose training in these research skills. Many think tanks are relatively prestigious, so you're getting a bit of a credential. And you're also getting to learn about a potentially important area of policy and build a network of people who like are interested in public policy. So you can see how it, you know, potentially can be very relevant for a lot of the areas we want to work on. Yeah. What about for people who kind of don't want to go back to school? Uh, perhaps they have more of a kind of a doer personality. They want to go out and take, take a job and, uh, and actually be creating things. Yeah. So I think, again, there's a bunch of positions in policy that could be a good fit for someone like that. I mean, in general, there's just like so many options in policy. There's 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 things for all kinds of different skill sets. But yeah, outside of think tanks, you've got uh, all kinds of jobs working for a politician. So like in the US, you could uh, become a congressional staffer. Also in the US, you could uh, work uh, for an election campaign. That's often one of the ways that people go in. There's yeah. also a bunch of like interesting executive branch positions. Exactly. And then that's the other big uh, class of options uh, is just working, trying to get into a relevant part of the executive branch or um, some other parts of, of the US government uh, right away. Yeah. What about business? I mean, I suppose tech startups is something that a lot of people are interested in, in doing. How do they look for career capital? Yeah. So it seems like tech startups is obviously a huge amount of variation in how good they are to work at. But we've, we have seen a, a decent proof of concept in that like We've seen people go to tech startups and then often learn a useful skill set like management or operations and then come back and it's and it's, and it's seemed to be clearly useful in social impact organizations. So um, I think that's often a pretty attractive option, especially if you are in the US or um, London or somewhere where there's a bigger tech sector that, that you can join. Though, yeah, just obviously uh, you want to be selective about which uh, startup you work at and try to find one like if you can work with great people or it has a lot of buzz around it or you think it might be like on an unusually good trajectory, um, which is like a bit easier to do if you you have a little bit of a network in that area. Yeah, I guess a benefit if it's growing really quickly is that you can potentially end up taking on way more responsibility, uh, you know, at a, at a young age than you might get if you're working at a think tank, which is probably like a bit slower growing and a bit more established. Yeah, I mean, I think even if the startup doesn't do that well, you can often end up with quite a bit of responsibility early on just because it's a small team. So kind of like everyone has to do everything and that that's one good advantage of it. Potentially give you pretty generalist training or lots of transferable skills. Yeah, exactly. And it's skills that are relevant to like more small and scrappy organizations, which is like similar to many of the nonprofits and other types of organizations that we're like 
interested in people working out longer term. Yeah. So we have this pretty big interest in artificial intelligence. I suppose also just going to work in any artificial intelligence related uh, organization. Uh, I guess that's kind of DeepMind, uh, OpenAI are kind of promising ones at the moment. Yeah, but it, I think it can also be worth considering um, a lot of the other AI companies as well, um, even though the, those, those two would be ideal to work at. And then again, that can kind of give you like similar training to a tech startup or, or, or like the larger organizations, maybe it's a bit more similar to management consulting, but you're also like learning about and getting a big network in AI, which is this really important area. Yeah, that's one way that uh, roles that don't even have anything specifically to do with you know, AI alignment, uh, just working in an AI related organization, uh, full stop, can potentially introduce you to the right people and uh, get, you, get you the opportunity to, to, to get a job that you think is really useful later on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe it's also just worth mentioning some like kind of catch-all categories as well, because there's just like loads of ways that you can potentially get really good career capital and we can't we can't list them all. And so like some kind of categories to consider, it's just like partly just if you can um, do something impressive in almost any area, that can open up lots of opportunities in the future because you'll like meet other interesting people. It'll be a kind of a type of credential. I think just related to that, like a sub almost a subset of that is like anything that can have a big impact in the next five years. And then thirdly, just anytime you get to work with a really good team or with a really good mentor, kind of almost in any area, you can learn so much from the people that you work with. And so like that, that can also be really worth considering, even if it doesn't obviously fit into any of the categories that we've listed. Yeah, uh, you're right. I was falling into the trap of just listing off a whole bunch of stuff, which is, uh, doesn't make for great podcasting. Uh, but I guess if people who want like more options can, can find that on the website, on the Key Ideas page and other pages that we link off to from there. Yeah, and we, we do hope to write more about it in the future as well. I suppose uh, kind of a high level trade-off that people often face is between getting kind of very specialized career capital that really advances them in, in this one track that they're probably already on versus developing very generic skills like just being able to write well, which is probably useful in, in almost any job. Yeah, where do we come down on the, this? Uh, if someone is like, has, has a choice between a job that's like very specialized versus one that develops generic skills? Yeah, I mean, maybe just to step back a little bit, I think if you look at the options we've just been listing that seem to be really good for career capital, just like pursuing those options is not actually that different from just doing like trying to get into directly what you think might be really good in five or 10 years. And so that's kind of going back to the point I made earlier that sometimes you don't need to kind of directly optimize for career capital as much because if you just optimize for like having a big impact over five or 10 years and doing something with good personal fit, then you're already going to be getting good career capital as a side effect. So like the trade-off is like a little bit less than I think it first seems. But then one place where as a trade-off that can bite a bit more is there does seem to be this trade-off between specialization and transferability. So some next steps you could go into, they give you skills like, you know, general skills like management that you could use in many different problem areas and many different organizations in the future. Whereas some things are, are much more narrow. So if you just like became an expert in a really specific area of policy, then that would be less transferable out outside of that. Though I, I should I should say I think people think of policy careers as being a bit more specialized than they actually are because um, people do often move around within policy careers quite a bit. Yeah, I guess the, the risk if you go into one of those kind of priority paths just straight out and then develop lots of specialized career capital is what if you change your mind about what you want to work on or the situation changes such that it doesn't seem like it's so valuable to work on that problem anymore, then you could get caught with kind of all of this stranded career capital that you've built up and then it's a bit hard to move out of it. Yeah, well, so I just want to clarify that it's not so much that the priority path is narrow. What The crucial thing is like what you're doing over the next couple of years many of the steps into priority paths do actually give you lots of options, such as like doing an ML master's. That's often like the best thing to do if you want to work on AI technical safety or, or AI policy. But then like doing that 
even if you decide to switch out of those priority paths, like it's still going to be a useful um, master to have studied for lots of other things. So like in that case, you don't need to be as worried about specialization too much, but maybe like the specialization worry would come in a bit later. Having said that though, some next steps are giving you much less transferable career capital than others. And yeah, the, obviously the, the downside of that is that if you decide to switch path, then if you've gained a bunch of career capital that's only relevant to one thing, then you'll be kind of throwing that away. Yeah, it seems like this, uh, the community maybe has a slightly different trade-off or a group of people has a slightly different trade-off uh, than, than individuals do. Right? I guess individuals often kind of don't want to sh- don't want to close off options. Uh, they find that like very, uh, kind of there's this risk aversion that makes people reluctant to do that. But then kind of as a, as a group of people, you, you, de- you need some people to go out and explore and like do, do specific things that, that necessarily kind of close off some options for them. Yeah, I mean, I think if you just think of the whole composition of the community, it's like it would be pretty bad to have just like a thousand generalists, but like no one knowing anything about like particular about anything yeah Um, how to get anything done yeah yeah it seems like it'd be much better to have like a large number of people be specialists and then they can like all work together to do the particular projects that need to be done whereas yeah i mean if you think about it more from a personal satisfaction point of view then there's a stronger argument for making sure you can stay stay flexible yeah so i guess maybe like a reasonable balance to conclude the section might be it's like sensible perhaps to focus on kind of generic skills very early on but then you do kind of at, at some point want to actually start specializing and not be afraid to do that yeah, so I think it is a difficult trade-off to make because the, I mean, the the other point is just that some degree of specialization does eventually seem to be necessary for almost any of the options that seem highest impact. Like at the very least, you have to learn a lot about the specific problem area that you want to work on um, at some point while gaining career capital. And so it seems like often it is worth specializing more and paying the trade-off of less flexibility. Though, yeah, if, if there were two steps you needed to take, towards your long-term option and one gave you more transferable career capital, then clearly do the more transferable one first and then like delay the specialization if you can. But it does kind of seem like you need to do it at some point. Yeah. To kind of sum up career capital overall for someone right at the start of their career, the rough way I would approach it is try to think about some long-term options that you might want to aim for that seem like they could be really high impact. Work back from there, think about which things might accelerate you the most in those paths. And then you could like probably choose between one of those based on personal fit. And like, that's roughly how I would weigh it. Like if you have a really good opportunity to accelerate yourself in a priority path then probably take that. But if you have an exceptional opportunity to have an impact, then probably take that. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. <laughs> Trivial. I'm sure everyone has figured out now what they're going to do. So I suppose to, to try to wrap up on uh, career capital, the, the, the situations can get like very complicated or the trade-offs can get uh, pretty difficult to, to weigh up uh, once you start thinking about concrete examples. At least like if you have multiple exam- uh, multiple uh, options that seem kind of sensible. A classic one might be, let's say that you're already working as an AI engineer um, and you're thinking, oh, should I go uh, and get a PhD and try to become you know a research uh, or a research scientist in AI instead? It's like on the one hand, you could like, be doing something that's like more useful uh, right away and also building like relevant career capital by actually working in a project. On, on the other hand, you can go off to school for, for a bunch of years, but then try to like jump up to a higher level. Uh, it kind of depends a lot on the specifics of the, of the person's situation. So any way of kind of like wrapping up how people should weigh career capital against other stuff? Yeah, so we've, we've been kind of talking about the easier case when you're in your first couple of jobs, and you're not really having any impact. So it's like basically all about career capital ultimately. Whereas later on in your career, you have these more fine-grained trade-offs where, you know, you could have a bunch of impacts one path or you have like less impact for a while and then more impact later and weighing that gets a lot more complicated one big question to just bear in mind is like which path will enable you to kind of contribute the most quality adjusted labor to that problem area over the course of your career and you can just kind of try to think through the two trajectories and like how much more productive you would be made 
but then yeah like there's then there's like a few other considerations one is like there's a risk that like your efforts become moot in the meantime so if you're trying to like prevent an existential risk then like if obviously that risk happens then <laughs> <laughs> you arrive too late to the party <laughs> yeah um and there's, there's like other things that could kind of cause your efforts to become moot so that can create a reason for urgency and then the other thing is there just could be timing considerations so in general it seems like as you get closer to one of these hinge moments in history that we talked about earlier it becomes like easier to see what to do about it and there's an argument for like then you just want to kind of like spend all your resources and try and make that hinge moment go well and then if you're not near a hinge moment then you want to invest as much as possible and so then you've got these like four factors that we just mentioned and you're kind of trying to weigh them all where that seems to shake out in practice is that in general you get like one group of people who are a bit more concerned about the like urgent existential risks and they're a bit more in favor of like having an impact sooner and not focusing quite as much on career capital though usually still somewhat on career capital and then the people who are more focused on the like the boring long-termist perspective that we mentioned earlier and they would be relatively more keen on getting career capital we have already recorded a podcast that is um, all about this like now versus later trade-off yeah uh, fingers crossed that'll, get out. <laughs> that'll be out in the next couple of months if it's not already by the time this one gets out all right let's let's move on and talk about another kind of a key career strategy issue which is uh personal fit uh, i suppose personal fit is kind of most of what you would hear about uh, if you went for uh, kind of classic uh, careers advice, uh, perhaps if you're about to graduate university. Uh, I suppose uh, for us, it's like somewhat de-emphasized, but we still think it's uh, pretty important. Uh, I guess, yeah, how, how big an idea do you think personal fit is in the, in the scheme of things? Yeah, I mean, we have a bit of a challenge in a way in that we think that, like you say, most careers advice like kind of mainly focuses on things around personal fit. And it like ignores all the other stuff we've just been talking about, about like, so for instance, how some problem areas might be much more effective than others. And so we see a big part of 80,000 hours is just pointing out that like these other things matter as well. And they could maybe be even more important for determining how much impact you have. And that then kind of means that then like people who've read our advice a lot, sometimes then end up underemphasizing personal fit. Cause that's kind of like, not the like central ideas that we focus on, but it, it is still really, really important. And so like one way to think about that is like, you can kind of imagine that like in some career paths, you probably just wouldn't stick with them at all. And so you'd basically end up having zero expected impact in them, like probably most career paths. Whereas like in others, maybe you do really well. And then in others, you might have a chance to kind of like be really exceptional in that path. And so like the, the difference in your impact between that top scenario and the bottom scenario is potentially like orders of magnitude of difference, maybe even. Yeah, I guess it, it, once you realize that uh, like most of your impact is probably like more than a decade in the future uh, and also just recognize that I, I guess I don't know anyone who kind of uh, stuck with a career for more than 10 years that they hated. Uh, I guess <laughs> uh, at least if they had other other options that they could uh, seriously get into, uh, then you, you kind of realize that taking a job in which you're not flourishing and which you kind of resent having to go to work is uh, probably not a great idea. Yeah, so there's... Um, one way to see that kind of personal fit might actually be even more important than common sense advice would say is like, if you are in one of these areas where like the people who perform best in the field have significantly more impact than like the typical person in the field, then it's like kind of extra crucial to increase your chances of getting into that top end of the field. Not every career is, has that pattern, but like some of the ones that we talk about, like policy careers, research, um, entrepreneurship, they, they seem a bit more to have that character. And so then like that actually means like personal fit kind of matters even more than people normally think. I think another big reason why personal fit matters a lot is that as I was kind of alluding to just now, the more personal fit you have in the career, then like the more successful you are in it. And then that also gets you better career capital. 
So it's also just this really useful um, instrumental thing. And like that just, that comes through like, you know, doing really well at almost anything gives you an interesting network and it like shows that you can like achieve things and um, be a top performer and that like opens up other opportunities. And like, if the thing is like somewhat relevant to the cause areas that you want to work on as well, and that's like even better. Yeah, I guess um, over the last 10 or 15 years, I've just seen a bunch of cases where people are like doing well at some job and then they kind of switch the task that they're doing to, to something that's a bit different or work at a different organization. And suddenly they start like really flourishing and just uh, super taking off in, in, in their career. Whereas before they were just doing kind of well, just kind of keeping up with everyone else. I guess this this somewhat informs my, my view that it's worth uh, doing a bit of like exploration or moving around early on to find something in which you're like not merely good, but you're really, uh, you're excellent. And that perhaps like relatively small changes in, in what it seems like you're doing or, or who you're working with can make a big difference to fit. Yeah, I think I think that's right. There was a there was another point in the recent anonymous advice series where one of the people we interviewed pointed out that like being really good at your job has all these other benefits that we were talking about, but also being really good at your job is kind of like harder than most people think in that like we're used to being at university where it's kind of like you just work for a few months and then you get like an A and you're like doing well, whereas becoming really successful in any of the areas we talk about could easily take like five years, 10, 10 years of uh, full-time work to get there. And so that just means like, it's just like essential that you um, stick with it for the long term. Yeah. I guess, uh, how often do you think people should kind of uh, take a job that seems worse in other ways or work on a problem that maybe we don't think is, you know, in general, quite as high a priority uh, because they're, they're a better personal fit for it? Yeah, I mean, you could kind of think of your long-term impacts very, just to super simplify as like the multiple of how good the path is in general and your degree of personal fit with it. And, you know, that would actually mean like both factors are very important and it could well be worth taking something that's like, maybe you'd see it as like a kind of like second tier in terms of how good it is in general. But if you have like significantly better personal fit for that path, um, that, that could well win out. Is it one complication with personal fit is that it seems like people are not super good at predicting what things they're going to really flourish at and what things they're going to really love. Sometimes you have people who think, oh, no, you know, I'm going to be great at being a doctor. And then they kind of try it out for a couple of years and just find that, it, that they're not like flourishing as much as they expected to, uh, not by a long way. Yeah. And there's all, there's all that literature about people being bad at predicting like what makes them happy and satisfied in the long term. And yeah, I mean, also the literature where people try to predict job performance, like there just aren't any predictors of job performance or expertise that are super reliable. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. But I guess, yeah, so among, amongst a bunch of, uh, I guess, not uh, not fantastic ways of trying to figure out well, what things you have great personal fit for, uh, which which ones look uh, least bad? Yeah, so we cite a meta-analysis of ways to predict job performance on the website. There was like a recent update to that meta-analysis. And it, it finds that uh, structured interviews are like not too bad a way of doing it. And like, I think you could like proxy that by speaking to people in the field and kind of asking them just like, what are the ingredients of success needed for someone in this area? And then how do I stack up on these? And just trying to get like an, an honest appraisal from someone who knows the area. I think that can often be useful. And then another thing that can be useful is like a bit more time consuming is to actually like try out the work in some way. And like work sample tests also can be a pretty reasonable predictor of, of job performance. And yeah, if you can like go down the path for a little bit or like do a couple of week projects in the area and like try and get a sense of how, how you're comparing, that, that can also be very helpful. I guess uh, people sometimes have this problem that uh, people don't want to discourage them in, in some career paths. So they get kind of overinflated feedback on, on how good they are at something. Uh, I guess uh, back in the episode with uh, Tetlock, the, the second interview I did with him, uh, we talked about how uh, very often PhD students get kind of encouragement from supervisors, even when the, probably their supervisors know in their heart that they're pretty unlikely to get an academic job. Uh, so I guess uh, Tetlock suggested that you should really, uh, you should go to them and like ask for like a brutally honest opinion, even if it's going to be very unpleasant, because the alternative can sometimes be, you know, going many years down a path that uh, then just leads you into a dead end, which is uh, 
like much more costly. Yeah, I mean, and when it comes to predicting personal fit more broadly, like it is one of these difficult prediction challenges and a lot of Tetlock's advice on just how to make good predictions in general, you can just directly apply to that question. So uh, there's like lots more interesting thoughts in there. All right, uh, let's wrap up on personal fit. Was there any last things you wanted to say about that? I'd just say, yeah, it's one of the most important considerations in choosing between options. And often the way it seems to go when, when we do one-on-one advising is someone will generate a bunch of like promising next steps or promising long-term options. And then often it seems like figuring out personal fit is like the main thing that is then used to tie break between the options and like the main, a lot, a lot of the focus of the effort in like the later part of a career decision. So yeah, once you've kind of like narrowed down a bit, it's like one of the most important considerations. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing is, I mean, all of these things can be quite hard to predict, but uh, maybe what you're actually motivated to do at any given point in time is among the more measurable things that you can know. So in as much as you're like, you're like super psyched about a job, uh, maybe even like if, if being psyched isn't the number one consideration, it might be among the more measurable things that you can figure out. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely want to consider that. And I like think about that a lot in figuring out what I want to work on personally. I guess I, I don't, I, I wonder a little bit about how exactly it squares with the literature about like, how people like claim a thing will make them really happy. And then like, actually when they're there and they survey them on how happy they are, like didn't make any difference. Yeah. Um, Maybe it uh, works better in the short term. If you're like, what do I feel psyched about doing today? Then you have a better measure of that than like, what will I still enjoy (laughs) doing in a year's time? Yeah, that, that seems right. Okay, so the uh, third career strategy uh, issue that we wanted to talk about was uh, exploration, which I guess is highly related to the previous two, because in order to kind of to, to figure out the, the job where you're going to have, have the best personal fit, you're going to have to potentially try out a bunch of different things, because uh, you can't yeah, just predict all, it ahead of time. All of the strategy considerations like overlap and interrelate a lot. Yeah, so I guess, uh, what, is the, what, what are the key messages that we have for people about exploration? Well, so I think one big point is just that like it's just very, very uncertain which career will be best for you. Like we kind of just been saying, it's really hard to predict personal fit. And that just means that also one of the most important priorities early career should just be to try to learn more about which things you're going to be best at in the long term. And in particular to kind of try out some of the options that you think might be most promising longer term. Yeah, so you could you could kind of think of that as like technically it gets called value of information. I'm just going to call it information value. And so like early career, you actually could kind of think of yourself as both optimizing for impact and career capital and information value and trying to like do the, the next steps that give you the best balance of all of these things. Yeah. So I guess that has the perverse uh, outcome that you could potentially go into a job and completely bomb at it, be completely terrible and be like, <laughs> wow, that was fantastic because I gained so much information. That, now that, that's helped me to roll out tons of options. And so now I can go out and try something and that I'll actually potentially be good at. Yeah, I think it is really helpful to think of, especially early on in your career, think of these these jobs you're taking as tests and in some ways it doesn't matter like how well it goes like what matters is like whether you learned about like what's going to be a good fit for you longer term i guess not all jobs that people can try out are like are equally informative so we, yeah, we have this idea that in some jobs there's kind of a greater dispersion or a greater variance in how well people perform and perhaps you can get the, the most information by trying options where it's like kind of shooting for the stars and and, and if you're a superstar then you know then you'll be that'll be massively good and so you get more information in, in as much as there's more uncertainty about how good your fit you're going to be in the first place yeah so one thing is if, if it seems like you're in one of these fat-tailed areas where the people who like do the best in the area have way more impact than the others, then kind of your only concern would be to like figure out if you're going to be in that tail or not, just to like really simplify. And so then you could, if you try that area and then if you get like evidence that you're probably not, if the probability is like sufficiently low that you would be in that tail, then you'd probably want to like switch into something else and, and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until you like eventually find the thing where 
you're more more likely to be in the tail. Yeah, I suppose a, a kind of clear example of that might be, let's say that you want to become you know, a famous singer. There's just only, there's, there's only room for a relatively small number of famous singers in the world. And so you could perhaps relatively early find out, you know, I'm actually just like not that great a singer. So the odds of me becoming a superstar are like actually now pretty close to zero. And so that's yeah. a good sign that maybe you should go off and try something else. Though I'm, I'm sure there are all kinds of stories about like people who <laughs> tried for decades and then suddenly broke through. So yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah it can be complicated. Okay, so in order to avoid uh, like wasting time, I guess how do people kind of gradually increase their investment uh, into, into into different parts? Like, what, what's the what's the escalation that people can do as they're as they're testing their uh, or they're exploring their fit for something? Okay, so we've we've said that because there's so much uncertainty, it's really important to early on try and test out things and learn about where you have the best personal fit. So, like you could imagine an early career plan could be like kind of identify the option that you think is like most promising, try that first, if that doesn't work, go to the next one, go to the next one and kind of keep trying like that. Though we actually think you can do a little bit better than that. And so like you can consider the question like which option would you learn the most from by trying it out? And that's the option that has the highest value of information. And like that seems to be basically it's an option that might be really, really, really good, um, but where you're really, really uncertain about it. So you can kind of think of that as an option where like the probability distribution of the outcomes is really wide and there's this like tail of outcomes that might be really good, but you're like very uncertain whether you might get it. It can sometimes be worth taking something like that over an option that might actually have higher expected value than it. If you can like test it early and figure out whether you're going to be in the like really good outcome or the median outcome. So I guess there's a sense in which it's kind of win-win because if you're particularly good at it, then you stay with it. And if, you, uh, if you're not good at it, then you just like quit and go do the next thing and it hasn't been that costly to experiment with it. Is that, is that the logic? Exactly. So you, another way of seeing it is as kind of asymmetry where if you go into this thing which has the really high upside but might easily not work out, then you know if you can try it for a year or two and then it actually does turn out to be in the really good scenario, then you just carry on for that maybe for decades. So you've got this like huge prize from doing that. Or if it turns out to like indeed actually not be as effective, which is maybe the default outcome, then hopefully you've only spent a year or two doing it. And then you can you can still, as long as you've kind of planned ahead, try something else. Yeah. So, so that's kind of one approach, but there kind of has to be a limit to how, to how much you can do that. Because you might, I guess you can imagine someone who just like keeps year after year trying something different, something different every time. That's like kind of a high risk thing that they mostly expect won't work out. Uh, but it's like, there's only so long you can do that, I, I guess, before uh, maybe you just be exhausted <laughs> with failing and some <laughs> well, of yeah. different things and like the other considerations in life kind of uh, start creeping in. Exactly. So information value, just like career capital, you should focus on it more early career. And so what, and then again, for like a very similar reason, which is like, the earlier on in your career you learn about something really good, the longer you can do it. And so the more valuable it is to have that information. Um, and so that just naturally means you should kind of do a bit less exploration as your career goes on and kind of become more conservative. So yeah, I guess like become more risk averse. Like I guess the, the bar of like the probability of you, of you succeeding in the job should kind of go go up and up over time. Whereas like, I guess so when you're 22, you can like really shoot for the stars. Whereas when you're 30, you kind of want at least to have a reasonable chance of success. Yeah, so kind of like technically, yeah, it would be focusing on the like the options which have these really big upside scenarios early, and then just focusing more and more on expected value um, over time, just converges to expected value. Yeah, so I guess there's kind of that declining benefit thing, but then there's also just I suppose people often want to settle down at some point. So I guess it's easy to recover from like uh, like getting getting fired from your job when you're 22, but maybe when you're 35, yeah. it becomes a bunch more costly because you've got other commitments in life that that make make I mean you just can't take unlimited career risks. Yeah, so I would I would actually try to factor that in with like a, a maybe it's just better to think of that as a different consideration, which is like well you have your impact goals and you have your personal goals, 
And when it comes to your personal goals, you want to be quite risk averse probably because, well, yeah, lots of reasons, but just like, you know, losing all your money is like much, much worse than like gaining the same amount, like signing my money is good. Um, so you really want to like not have the worst scenarios happen. Whereas like from an impact point of view, you can be like, it's fine to take a high risk, high return option because if, if that has a high expected value. So you, you you then just need to kind of trade those two things against each other, um, depending on like how much personal risk you're willing to put on. And then I suppose you're right that in general, people are less willing to take personal risk later on in their careers. And that's because they have dependence. And so that's kind of increasing the downsides. So, you know, so, so there's a whole lot of thing about life circumstances that can change how, how much you're willing to take risks. It's like, do you have a whole lot of savings? I mean, this is a reason to, to, to have yeah. that aspect of career capital, which is having a bunch of money in the bank, because it just allows you to take risks that kind of have very positive expected value, but might, uh, you know, uh, expose you to, to, to some significant downside. Yeah, but that's a good example of why you'd actually be able to take more risks later career because you oh, yeah. tend to be like more financially set up later career. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And then yeah. you do see people who've done that, you know, they've like retired from their corporate job and now they just kind of do whatever they think is highest impact, even if it's like could easily not work out. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I suppose just, just generally, you've got this question of um, how good is my backup option if this doesn't work out? I suppose if, you're, if you've already retired from your corporate job and have enough money to live forever, then your backup <laughs> option looks pretty great. So, yeah. Um, I think there's probably other reasons why it's easier to explore early. Like one thing is just, it seems that just like society is like more tolerant to people switching jobs a lot early because it's kind of expected. And you also have these opportunities like internships, which can be good for testing out a thing, but then like older people aren't allowed to take internships. So you have these um, unusually good opportunities for exploration that you get early, but not later. And probably there's also just diminishing returns as well, where like, once you've tried out a bunch of jobs, you've like learned a bunch about your personal fit and you're like, you'll learn a bit less from trying out future things. Yeah. One consideration we haven't talked about is that sometimes it's not only a question of, you know, having a big upside versus like no upside. It can also be a question of like big upside versus like massive downside. And if, if you're in an area where you can potentially do a lot of harm, then just like taking massive risks is not necessarily such a winner. Yeah, exactly. So I think with this kind of approach of like focusing a bit more on these like high risk, high return things, there's two important caveats to that. One is like, you need to also manage your personal risk while doing it, which we just mentioned. And then like having a good backup option is important for that. And then also you want to avoid like any risks of having a significant negative impact in the, the field that you're focusing on. So you, one, one way you can think about it is just like filter out anything like that first. And then from among the remaining things, focus more on the things with the potentially really big upsides. Yeah, we won't talk much about uh, ways that people can accidentally do, do harm here, but we have a whole article. Uh, I think it's like nine ways you can accidentally do harm in your career, which, <laughs> which uh, we link to from the Key Ideas page. I suppose that this, uh, this issue of exploration uh, raises a, another weakness that you can potentially get by going into prestigious corporate jobs, uh, which is that almost no one expects that you know, working in strategy consulting just for you know, businesses in general is going to be their very best long-term option. Uh, and as a result, they're not really kind of narrowing down this question of like, what is their very best option that they really want to end up to in, 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 the, in the long term? Kind of, it kind of slightly fails in exploration in that sense. Yeah, so we, we quite often come across people who say, well, I'm not really sure what to do long-term, so I'm going to do one of these like corporate job things to basically buy time, which like could sometimes be reasonable, but if you're really uncertain what to do long-term, then the crucial, most important priority is to try to figure it out. And like the sooner you can figure it out, the better. Yeah. And so it's really important to think with exploration, what you actually want to explore and test out is the things that might be best for you long-term. And you want to try and like test those as soon as possible and like falsify them or like gain evidence for them being being your best thing. And then, yeah, if, if something like consulting is not something that you're planning to focus on long-term, then you're not getting that benefit from doing management consulting. 
though I'd say management consulting is better than many other prestigious corporate jobs for exploration because you do at least get to try out working in several different industries. So um, it does have that benefit. Whereas, yeah, if you think like maybe something, one of the other categories like law, like doesn't also doesn't have that. Yeah, I mean, I, and I guess even if you're not learning a lot about specific paths, you learn potentially a bunch about yourself, like what kinds of tasks you enjoy doing and what your strengths are. Exactly, though, you get that in almost any job. So mm, that's true. If, if we're just considering the like delta between different things then. Yeah, I guess um, another challenge that we've seen some people face is that they go into jobs in order to kind of explore their options and then find that, and then they realize that they want to leave that, uh, that option. Uh, but they find that they're just so busy doing their actual job all the time that they barely have uh, any time to actually like learn about uh, ways, of, ways of getting out, which I suppose is a trap that people should uh, potentially like be aware that they might fall into and, uh, and try to avoid. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people, they've, they've done this job for a couple of years because they were so uncertain, but then they come out and they find that they're just as uncertain as they were going in. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Is there anything else to uh, say about exploration? I suppose um, there's, there's a whole lot more on this topic in our in our podcast that both of us did actually with uh, Brian Christian, who wrote uh, Algorithms to Live By, where we talk about a bunch of kind of mathematical models of this uh, explore-exploit trade-off. Uh, but is there anything else that we want to say here? So yeah, this... This whole discussion has been all about trying to figure out what long-term path is best. But if you're like facing a choice between your next step, so like th- something you might just do for the next couple of years, then like again, all, all this uncertainty means that like testing out and doing more exploration can be really important as well. And you can kind of think like the bigger the stakes of the decision, the more like exploring, testing, research you should do before making the decision. So if you're kind of like choosing where to like spend several years then it could easily be worth spending like 10 percent of that so that would be like a month or two uh trying to figure out which option is best so we, we do often come across people in our advising who they're facing a decision and then they're just like only trying to analyze it and try and like figure it all out like from a desk and just think it through when like often it can be really useful to try to think like well concretely what am i actually uncertain about and then how could i just like go out into the world and like learn about that uncertainty all right. Okay. So that was career capital, personal fit, uh, exploration, and I suppose a bit about uh, risk management as well. Is there any way that we can kind of tie together all, all these different points into a, a cohesive vision of, of career strategy? <laughs> There's kind of a lot of different considerations here that people are trying to weigh up. And I suppose one answer is just that there is there is no one dominant uh, consideration here. There's like just a lot of things that you have to put down on, on the page and then, uh, then try to weigh them up against one another. Yeah. So I think the best way to think it through is to consider all these different strategic considerations and like try and balance them against each other. And like, that's what we lead people through in our career decision process where we kind of, we recommend like, you can actually just like for your next step, say you could score them on like impact, career capital, personal fit, maybe degree of personal risk, what, 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 whatever factors you think are most important and try and take the option that has the best balance of those things. But I think there are also some patterns in what we've been saying. And so you can see that in general, Early on in your career, say, especially in your first couple of jobs, that's really about trying to test out promising long-term options and get career capital that could accelerate you in those options. Whereas later career, it comes more about just trying to do the thing that you think is highest expected value. Yeah. And then personal fit is probably just important throughout your career. Later career, because doing something with better personal fit is higher impact and early career because it builds your career capital faster. Also... In general, you always want to have a backup option for the, the thing you're focusing on the most um, as a type of risk risk mitigation. So yeah, we, we, we kind of sum up some of these points on the Key Idea series. All right, nice. Uh, it's a bit of a shame that there's uh, so many things to uh, take into take account of uh, when you're making career decisions, but I suppose uh, no, no one said that our careers are going to be easy. <laughs> Once you kind of consider these different strategic factors, that they do tend to be like a couple of like 
formats or schema, like career plan schemas that often make sense. One of those is just like try and figure out like your most promising couple of options and then like aim to like try out all of them and then like choose the one that seems best after trying them um, in a couple of years time. We emphasize that quite a bit in the old career guide. Another schema is just to like choose the thing that has the highest expected value and then do that. And if it doesn't work out, try the next best thing and so on. But as we kind of covered, that's, that plan is actually neglecting um, information value. You can then do a slight modification of that plan, which is then to take the best upside option first. So that's the thing where like, if it goes unusually well, if you end up like at the top end of your expectations, then the thing that's best in that scenario, then do that one. And then if that doesn't work out, try your next best upside option. And then actually, and then as we were saying, get more conservative over time as your career goes on. And so that's the kind of like try out upside options, career plan schema. The fourth career plan schema is just to like, if you're, this is the one to do if you're like super, super uncertain is just build transferable career capital and then, and then decide later. And I, I think, yeah, in general, you want to be doing the like career capital one or trying out lots of options in the like most, if you're at the most degree of uncertainty. So like maybe in your like first one or two jobs. And then like, I think the kind of upside option one is the one that we like most commonly would recommend. And then the like just to expected value one is like more the like late career option. Yeah. Um, I guess one, one <laughs> I'm sure that clarifies everything. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, one uh, slightly convenient simplifying thing is that very often kind of the thing that you have the best fit for both allows you to have the biggest direct impact uh, and also to build the most career capital and also yeah working on the thing that uh, the problem that seems like the most pressing that you want to do long term also uh, potentially offers you the best career capital. So it's not as always if like these factors are completely independent and then, then there's always big trade-offs. Sometimes they just all come together. Yeah, that's a really big important clarification. So the idea of the upside option is like by pursuing that long-term upside path, firstly, you're getting information value because the path might be super good, um, but you're unsure about it. Secondly, while well, you're on this good long-term path, so you're getting some like at least relatively good career capital. Thirdly, you've probably got good personal fit for that thing. So otherwise it wouldn't be one of your top upside options. And so there seems like often all the factors like can converge on on something a bit like that. I guess the one that sometimes doesn't is exploration. Like the thing that you know is good versus the thing that might be even better. Uh, that, that's that's one that uh, you can potentially face at any point. Yeah, I mean, and I think also the specialized versus transferable career capital thing can be a tricky one. Okay, uh, let's move on to another career strategy issue, which is like, how do you make your career fit into your broader life and like the other concerns that you have? I suppose uh, this is something that people in the effective altruism community have debated a lot over the years and is, has sometimes been a bit of a controversial one. What do you think personally? And I guess, what, what does 80,000 hours recommend? Okay, yeah. So the issue is like, what happens when you have a conflict with what would make you personally happy versus like what seems to like do good in general, which is our focus at 80,000 hours. And so, so there's a couple of points to make about this. One is that I think if you kind of pursue the vision of a career that we're laying out here, you are trying to do something meaningful. You're trying to find something that you're good at. You're trying to like work with other people to contribute to a pressing problem. These are all things that are like very satisfying to do as well. And like, you know, there's many types of satisfying career, but I think that is, is one of them. And so by kind of following the 80,000 hours advice, often you can end up quite personally satisfied as well from doing that. So there's a bit less trade-off than it first looks. You know, that said though, I think there can definitely be trade-offs that you face. Like it'd be very, very lucky if like the morally best thing perfectly lined up with like the thing that was like best for your own well-being um, or like just your, your other goals. And then exactly how to deal with those is just a very tricky issue that's like very debated in moral philosophy and you have to really weigh up your specific circumstances. 
one line of thought on this is like the kind of Peter Singer argument that like, if you can help other people with little cost to yourself, then, you know, you ought to just do that as much as you can until it becomes like a major sacrifice to you. And so in Singer's paper, Famine, Affluence, Morality, he kind of argues that we should never like have any luxury spending. We should give away like most of our money to help those in, in global poverty. And so that would really argue for like the main focus of your career and your life should just be helping others. One point about Peter Singer's argument is people often attack it by saying like, oh, actually you can't help in international development very much. There's nothing effective to do there. But Singer's argument is actually much more general than that. As long as there's like any way to help others without like a huge cost to ourselves, then you should spend almost all of your resources doing that. It'd be pretty astonishing if there was like no way that anyone could find to like do a lot of good to help other people. Yeah. And like the way we kind of approach this is like, you know, if there's some chance that now is an unusually important time in history, we've gained all this like technology and wealth that's like pretty unprecedented in history and our actions today might affect the entire long-term future, then maybe just the stakes of our actions are really, really high. And again, that should be the main thing we focus on. That's the arguments on those side. But then there's like lots of philosophers who've argued that, you know, the, the demands of morality are not so pressing as that. It's, uh, it's kind of permissible to also have your personal goals and, and work on those as well. And I mean, I would say many, I'd say me personally, I just see making a difference and partially as like one of my important goals, but not my only goal in life. And so uh, the way I kind of see it is it's like the main aim of my career and I give 10% of my income or forgo 10% of my income to charity. But then like with the rest of the 90% of my income and my free time, I'm like free to do whatever I want with that. And um, I definitely do lots of things that are like very ineffective from uh, <laughs> having an impact point of view, like buy like overpriced clothes or like Eat get, fancy food, get yeah. too into fancy food. Yeah. So like, that's kind of how I approach it. And I think many of, many of our readers do as well. And then finally, like there's another kind of point of convergence that just like everyone agrees, even if you like fully accept the Peter Singer argument that there's like no point making yourself miserable and like just working yourself ragged and then burning out. That's definitely not the best thing to do, even from a, from an impartial doing good point of view. I think, you know, actually probably if you want to maximize your impact, you should probably be doing something you enjoy, can do sustainably. You need to treat yourself with some compassion realize that like we're not perfectly moral and we're gonna like not be able to like always do the kind of like abstract best thing and you know both for your for your own being able to keep with it but also like if you can get other people interested in doing good as well that's like another way of having an impact and if everyone trying to do good is super miserable all the time um, it's probably not going to be the most effective thing yeah yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I feel like, so I'm a lot more willing than you, I think, to like take the more like extreme, dogmatic, like very demanding, like philosophical position or to say that like that just may well be correct, that like morality wasn't made for people and like people don't want morality to be really demanding, but but it, but it just happens that it, that it actually is. But then I, I think I might go even further than you in saying that there's like not that many practical trade-offs in real cases because like, we, we can go through like a whole lot of different considerations. So yeah, one is like you seem to have like most of your impact after you spent a long time in a career and you've developed a lot of expertise. And then if you're not enjoying it, then like most people just find it extremely hard to stick with a career for like many years or, or, or decades. Like, yeah, if you hate something, like how likely are you still to be working at when, when you're 60? Like things will intervene. Um, then there's also just yeah people who are like unhappy. I find that it tends to like cloud their judgment or just like cause them to behave strangely and to like get stressed out and like 
not get along with their colleagues. There's like all of these like negative effects that just like being yeah. kind of negative, like have, has, just has a being life in your... really motivated by guilt doesn't necessarily yeah. seem like it leads you to the, do the most effective things. Yeah. It seems really crushing. So like, it, and people, they seem to develop like, uh, uh, yeah, odd complexes when they're, when they're motivated by, <laughs> by, by guilt. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, quite, not quite sure that I can put my finger on it here, but it like just doesn't seem like it leads to good, good decision-making uh, relative to being really happy. And I think this issue of like, if you're unhappy, then you're going to repel other people from like wanting to work on the same things that you do and from like wanting to collaborate with you and from like agreeing with you. That can be like a really enormous factor. Like if you imagine that like over the course of your career, you might recruit one, two, three, four other people uh, to like join in the similar work to what, to what you're doing because you'll just be a, you know, uh, potentially a charismatic and like appealing person to, to be associated with. But let's say that you won't be able to do that if you're just like constantly miserable because you're like working every hour of the day and get no time off. Yeah. That is like just an, an enormous like factor. I yeah, think you, you have to really think you're getting like a lot more work done. There is the counterpoint to that, that like people who do like extreme sacrifice can be very inspiring as well because yeah, um, they kind of act as these like saint like figures that motivate others. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, yeah, I agree with that. Although, like, how many people do they attract to then try to emulate them and like go and get another job? Like, just most people aren't interested in like self-sacrifice in, in in the same way. Whereas they would be like if they could live a perfectly good life while yeah doing a lot of good. That's true. Maybe you get like a lot of attention, but not many people yeah. following you. I, yeah. There's also just uh, the fact that like many of the jobs that we recommend kind of like pay reasonably well, and they're like very intellectually stimulating, and also they're like relatively high status in society. Like people tend to like you for for, for doing the things that, that we suggest. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's like if you are able to land one of these really good things. Yeah. I think probably where a lot of the trade-off comes in is like if you focus on this very impact point of view, then you're going to want to be like kind of pursuing these slightly higher risk things that like might be really good, but it's a good chance they don't work out. And so the trade-off comes in like taking greater personal risk where maybe you like spend several years trying a thing and it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. At least that's only like several years of cost, but it might kind of set back the rest of your career quite a bit compared to if you'd just done a more like kind of standard option yeah. that was going no, I think like, yeah, one area where it might, well, I might think that it is good for people to make a sacrifice is to like take big risks in their career and to accept the possibility that like their career could end up like being like not as interesting or like not as successful in, in the long term because they take a bunch of risks and just none of them pan out. But I guess I, I, yeah, maybe this is kind of a personal perspective, but I feel like even people who do that, like it's not as if they end up with like unpleasant lives on a day-to-day basis or if their like lives are unfulfilling or things considered. Yeah. Especially like the people that we tend to be advising tend to have like many interesting, uh, you know, career options and, and even their fullbacks are like pretty pretty stimulating and like you know don't end don't end up with them in penury yeah i mean i would always say uh try to have like well we talk about having a plan z no matter what you do they're like something that would still be acceptable to fall back into and if you like can't see what the plan z is from this path then i think it's like also pretty reasonable to just like not do that (laughs) and like do something where you can see a plan z or you don't need a plan z yeah I should say I'm partly saying these things in reaction to people I know who are like really dedicated to doing good who have like decided to make this like the number one thing that they think about all the time and for them I often just want to say like chill out like you don't have to you don't have to rush you don't have to stress like every day about like whether you're having uh, having lots of impact just get the big picture right like be be heading in the right direction and like that's like a pretty good thing to do just an expectation things will work themselves out because like most people are like not really thinking that much about social impact in their career in general and for them I would recommend yeah maybe maybe they should think about it a little bit more often and like be willing to make some personal sacrifice or like you know take take some risks yeah so another kind of important aspect of career strategy is figuring out how you can have a larger impact by uh coordinating with other people in such a way that you can kind of share fixed costs get like economies of scale uh like use your comparative advantage that you like each of you is doing the 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 best thing or the thing that you're like most capable of doing yeah how does the, the 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 career strategy picture kind of look different when you're working as a group of people rather than just as an individual 
Yeah, in general, it seems like people can have a lot more impact if they work together rather than individually. And so like just way of seeing that is like, if you're going to start a company, one way of doing it would be like everyone to be a generalist, but it seems like it's generally more effective for like one person to be the product person, one person to be the sales person, one person to be the marketing person. And then like by doing that, the collective impact will be sufficiently big that they'll all end up with a bigger share than if you just kind of tried to do everything yourself. And so those are all the mechanisms that Rob mentioned behind that. And so, yeah, we want to do the same when doing good. And I think it seems like taking that perspective might actually change which options seem most promising uh, quite a bit, though this is like still quite an active area of uncertainty for us. And our article that we have on this uh, is still uh, not, not fully finished. So I'm just going to kind of talk through some of our initial ideas here. So yeah, if you kind of more ignore coordination, then the challenge is like more just trying to identify like the single best opportunity at the margin and then taking that and uh, like kind of holding everyone else fixed. And I call that the single player approach. So like as, as, a, as an example of how that can go wrong, if you're thinking like, should I work at this nonprofit? Then on the single player approach, you might think, well, if I don't work at this nonprofit, someone else will take that job otherwise. And so that doesn't really seem like a very effective opportunity. But we can see that if that other person who would take the job kind of shares your values and like also wants to work on these problems, then by you taking the job, you free them up to go and do something else that's potentially high impact. And so... The question then doesn't so much become like, what's the job that no one else is going to take at the margin? It's more like of all the job seekers currently interested in these problem areas, what's the ideal allocation of these people between all these opportunities that are currently open? Okay, so that's how that's how the picture changes a bit with like, say, job opportunities. Here's another example of where the top options might change. And that's the question of which problem areas uh, people should work on. So from a kind of single player perspective, you'd probably just be trying to identify the single problem that you think is most pressing and that you have good personal fit with. And then you just go and work on that. And you wouldn't really think about what other people were doing too much. But if you think there's this whole community of people who are all um, potentially working together and shifting between opportunities, then as more people go into one area, that area will have diminishing returns. And that and other reasons will mean that from a kind of large scale community point of view, the community should invest in several different areas, similarly to how a large foundation would want to donate to several different causes. Then how, what's, how would you then work out which area you should personally work on? And so the question then becomes, uh, like ideally, if you could choose exactly how the community was allocated across problem areas, like what percentage resources would you put into all the different areas? So that's the ideal allocation, that's the first question. And then, then you wanna think, okay, in what ways are we out of whack with that allocation compared to where we'd ideally be? And then you probably want to focus on the areas which are then most under the optimal allocation and trying to bring them up to the balance. And then the third question would be just also then what's your comparative advantage compared to other community members? If you're like unusually suited for one problem area, then that makes, makes sense for you to work on that, freeing up other people to work on areas that they're better suited to. So like, a more concrete example within AI safety, one of the really big questions is, is um, powerful AI likely to be developed soon or like maybe 50 or 100 years in the future, which we call a longer timeline. And so from a community point of view, you'd probably want actually to have people allocated into working on both short timeline scenarios and long timeline scenarios, because there's going to be diminishing returns to each type of opportunity. And then so you should think, is the community currently under investing in either the short ones or the long-term ones, and then uh, working on the one that's most under-invested in. Uh, and then again, also considering your comparative advantage. And that could actually mean that like, maybe you think in general, your guess is that AI timelines are short, say, 
but you think actually the community is really underinvesting in the long-term uh, timeline scenarios, that might actually mean it's better for you to work on the long-term ones rather than the kind of your best guess option. Yeah, I guess another scenario might be, uh, let's say that you think that you're a much better place to work on the short-term uh, problems, but in fact, you think like long, uh, long AI timelines is more likely, but you think that if you start working on the short, uh, short-term scenarios, then like that would cause someone else who would have done that to go and work on the long-term scenarios who will have a kind of comparative advantage working on those. Uh, you can kind of like fund someone in, in a positive way out into something that's like more like their comparative advantage relative to you. Exactly. And um, yeah, we have a whole article about comparative advantage. It can actually be a bit different from personal fit. So we think of your personal fit as what you're best at compared to, say, people in that area in general or that career path in general. But sometimes it's actually better to do something that you're not that good at if you can then free up someone else who can then go and do something like even better than what you would have done otherwise. One case where that could potentially bite is if you could imagine kind of two academics or two people who are like very good at research in the in the scheme of things, trying to kind of set up some like new research institute, uh, and maybe they they can't easily hire other people for like whatever practical reason. But uh, in order to like, they have to kind of raise money to like fund this project to, to get it off the ground uh, to, to to begin with. Um, but kind of both of the, both of them are like their, their strength is in research or their personal fit. It would seem to be in, in research. But nonetheless, like one of them has to do uh, fundraising. And so like uh, yeah, just because of the kind of complementarities between them, uh, someone whose like personal fit is not uh, fundraising could end up having to go into that. And even further than that. It could be the case that the person who is relatively worse at fundraising out of those two uh, should go on and become the fundraiser because it could be that that would then free up the, the, the other person who's like actually better, like better than them at research. So you're going with someone who's like not doing their personal fit and also like not doing what is their absolute advantage relative to their colleague uh, working on this, on, on this project, which is like slightly perverse, but I think uh, like actually might be like a relatively common scenario when you're coordinating with, uh, with large groups. Mm, or yeah, it, it, especially it seems like often seems to actually come up within small teams where you've got like a fixed number of employees in the short term. And kind of a fixed number of roles that kind of kind of have to be have to be done or a fixed number of tasks that have to be done. Yeah. But yeah, like I say, this gets pretty complicated. So we, we have a full article that kind of goes through all these cases and uh, it kind of explains the circumstances under which it applies and doesn't apply. But yeah, going back to the overall approach that I talked about, like what's the ideal allocation? How can you push it in the right direction? And what's your comparative advantage? Uh, Owen Cotton Barrett called that the portfolio perspective. And that potentially applies to how we should think about many issues uh, faced by the community. So we've already mentioned like how to allocate across AI timelines. Another thing is like how to allocate across cause areas. But then also it could be more broad things like uh, should we prioritize broad long-termism or targeted long-termism as we talked about earlier. Uh, it could even apply to things like career capital because we maybe want some people kind of investing in their career capital now. So they're in a really good position in 20 years but then other people should just be taking these short run opportunities that are really good. And um, yeah, you could, you could worry like, you know, is the community under investing in the medium term uh, investment things or is it under investing in the immediate impact opportunities? Uh, and again, like you should be thinking about, do you have like unusually good opportunities in either of those two categories? And then if so, like maybe you should do that and like let other people take the other opportunities. So, so those are some examples of how uh, your view of like what's highest impact might shift if you start to take into account more of these uh, coordination considerations. Yeah, we also have a, a much longer article that goes into a bunch of other potential implications of these. 
Another consideration that shows up here is that kind of it, when you're like working with a group and trying to like harness all of these benefits of like, yeah, working, like yeah, coordinating between people, it can pay to be like just extremely nice to one another. So that's like, <laughs> so that it's like possible for you to like avoid like just having fights that like pre prevent you from like harnessing all of, the, all of these gains. Um, and I guess, especially you want to like maintain a very high level of trust, say. So like a lot of this stuff breaks down if you think that people like are going to uh, mislead one another uh, whenever they get kind of the opportunity to do that to benefit their project. Because then like people just won't believe like what one another saying um, and so it makes it makes it much harder to coordinate across different projects or for like funders to believe what like you know fundraisers are saying so yeah and as much as you think that there's big gains from coordination uh that gives like a, a reason to be like unusual like to have an unusually high level of of, of integrity uh, and honesty and like and, and, and probity uh, and also i guess to like demonstrate the value of like uh valuing coordination and valuing uh yeah coordination and, and, and cooperation um so that we can like all like yeah accomplish more together and another side of that is like, if you're working with people who really share your values, then kind of like, normally it's like actually worth being very helpful to people because you might kind of both be able to mutually benefit each other. More formally, you can like make trades for mutual gain. But like if other people share your values, then you don't even care about them like benefiting you back. You just helping them like also furthers your own values. Because like if someone else is trying to reduce existential risk and then you help them find a job, then in a sense, that's just more existential risk reduction from your point of view. And you don't really care who takes the job itself. There's lots of strong reasons to be like very helpful in daily life. Um, but actually when you're now part of a community that's all got the same goal, then there's like actually even stronger reasons to be like even more super helpful. And this could cash out as things like, you know, doing small favors for people, um, giving them uh, advice, um, helping them like figure out um, their plans in an area, all these kinds of things should be maybe done to like an unusually large degree. Having a good culture is also really important for getting people wanting to work on these areas involved for the long term. So it's also just really important for uh, actually growing the community, working well with other communities. And so there's like, that's a whole other area of reasons. There's a lot more that we could say about uh, these like many considerations that come up with our coordination. But as we're saying, it's like quite technical and quite thick with, uh, thick with uh, <laughs> considerations and, and, and modeling that comes out if of it. If you've so. ever needed, yeah, technical reasons to be a nice person, uh, <laughs> we've got you covered. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've been talking about a lot of different considerations that people could uh, bring to bear when, when, when planning out their career. Is it possible to kind of yeah bring this into any kind of like cohesive decision-making process, kind of a step-by-step -step process that, that people can use to uh, to do all these things in a way it's that's funny, like not overwhelming? say that. <laughs> <laughs> we have just what you're looking for. Um, <laughs> we, we didn't plan this ahead of time. It's all spontaneous. Uh, so the final section of the Key Ideas series, we... Um, cover a couple of checklists that you can work through to make your decision. And so one we call the process summary, which is like just what are the steps to go through to like actually make a long-term career plan and figure out your next step. And then we also have a separate process, which is called the decision-making process, which is when you have like a couple of career options, A, B, and C, and you want to choose between them specifically. Yeah, when in our advice in general, it's really easy to focus on the the kind of concrete career paths that we talk about because they're really salient. But with any career decision, it's going to be a really individual thing where you're going to have to factor in a lot of personal circumstances, uh, your own strengths, all those kinds of things. So it's always, unfortunately, we can't just kind of come up with a list of the top 10 careers that everyone should do. You always have to think through your, your own decision. And, and so we try and help with that by providing these processes as well. Not going to go over them now because uh, it's better just to read through them when you're facing a specific decision, but just going to, uh, could highlight a couple of um, points to particularly emphasize. So I think one big thing is 
it's easy to focus a bit too much on analysis rather than concretely gaining information. So we sometimes come across people who've kind of like been racking their brains, like analyzing these options, whereas they they could have just gone and found out something that would have uh, like immediately made the decision more more obvious. So like one example recently was uh, we um, came across an academic who was considering whether to do a sabbatical for a year in, a, in another location. And they thought about it a bunch, but they hadn't considered just going to visit that that place for a week, which would have like probably made it a lot more clear whether they would actually want to spend a whole year there. We also sometimes see the opposite mistake where someone has just like quit their job and then they're going to like think full time about their career. And that often seems a bit risky unless you've got like a very clear plan worked out for like what you're going to do with this time and how you're going to uh, make sure you have answers at the end. In general, we'd encourage people to kind of do a series of cheap tests or cheap ways to gain information, which go in ascending order of cost. So often initially, the most useful thing is just to go and talk to people about the job. And that's the most useful information to gain. Uh, and then later you can go on to more involved things like spending a week, uh, the, the, the spending a week in the location, the sabbatical example, or like doing some kind of trial work, applying to the job. Uh, these are kind of bigger tests. And then you might even want to like kind of try the job for a year or something as a kind of much bigger commitment. The key thing is to be thinking about what are actually the key uncertainties that are driving actually would decide, help me decide between option A and B and how might I figure those out and how might I get information that just answers, answers those uncertainties. Yeah. The other common, most common mistake is probably just uh, not considering enough options, which like all the kind of decision-making literature, that's maybe the kind of biggest single piece of advice or like biggest issue that's uncovered in that literature is like when people are faced with a decision, they they can often improve the decision by just considering like a wider range of options than they're initially considering. And yeah, we, we come across people who've been uh, following our advice for a while and just haven't considered options that seem obvious for them. So one, one example we mentioned on annual review was Cullen, who was a lawyer at Harvard and someone with that background uh, that's a great preparation to work on AI policy, but they just hadn't really considered that they were thinking about earning to give or maybe environmental law, uh, a bunch of other areas. And just, um, they ended up actually making a bunch of applications in that area as long, along with their other jobs. And they, they got a job offer from FHI, uh, which is now where they're a researcher. Just the final thing on decision-making, uh, career decisions are like a really messy domain where our intuitions are not necessarily a good guide. And so if you want to get better at making career decisions, a lot of that involves making these really difficult predictions about the future, like uh, how successful might you be in different fields, like how high impact might this charity be? And all the best advice we found on like how to get better at that skill of making better predictions uh, is Philip Tatlock's work. And so we've got two other podcasts with him, which provide a great introduction to all that kind of stuff. Another comment on, on decision making is that every so often I encounter people who are like stressing a lot about their next career decision and kind of want to like work on it right away and make like lots of decisions, especially like decisions that they think will have like ramifications over many decades. It seems like going through like all of this process, learning all of this information and then like figuring out like, like how to get yourself on a different career track is going to take probably at least like months, possibly years. And so people like shouldn't feel like an enormous pressure to like reassess all of these things right away. It's kind of it's a marathon, not a sprint in my mind. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, yeah, just in general, these kinds of decisions can be uh, very overwhelming, but it's always really useful just to then try to bring it down to like what specific options on the table, what are actually my key uncertainties, how might I figure those out? And yeah, that's what we hope the decision-making 
process helps with. It's just kind of like a checklist or like a bunch of prompts and questions that can help you at least make sure you haven't missed anything obvious and kind of do the best job you can of making the best decision you can, which is uh, all you can do. Are there any things we should highlight about the process of applying for jobs itself? So yeah, one article in the old career guide is uh, all about just very practically how to actually apply to jobs. That's like a little bit out of date now. I wouldn't write it exactly the same, but I think a lot of the specific advice applies and there's lots of uh, further resources and reading in there. Just one point I wanted to highlight now is the importance of making a lot of applications. So one of our team members, Howie Lample, uh, when he was trying to get a job at a think tank, he applied to about 30 places, um, including uh, some economic research institutes, lots of think tanks. And he got turned down by almost all of them, though he got a job offer from Brookings, which is pretty much one of the most prestigious uh, think tanks. And that just shows that even someone who's like qualified to get into some of the top jobs in a sector still needs to apply really widely and might get rejected a lot of times. Yeah, I kind of I don't envy people who are applying for jobs. It's like something that kind of everyone has to go through, uh, like potentially many times in their lives. But it's like it's it's a, it's a very stressful thing to do. And like even if you've like been at the top of your game, you potentially have to you know, just apply for like so many jobs and like accept the fact that you're just going to be rejected potentially again and again and again. It could be like quite demoralizing. Yeah, and some sometimes, uh, especially early in our career, we might not have gone through a process of getting uh, rejected thirty times in a row. It's a pretty pretty difficult experience to go through. Yeah, a typical job application process might only have like a couple of percent acceptance rate. So you can kind of see from that that as a ballpark, you're going to be thinking that you need to apply to say like 20 to maybe more than 50 places to uh, be confident of having a job. One thing to keep in mind is uh, just how random the job application process is that like very often organizations, especially in these kind of like very skilled jobs are like looking for someone with like very specific capabilities and like the, the ability to like get along with a very particular manager or like, or a very particular team where like someone could be qualified in lots of ways, but then if they're kind of like randomly missing like one kind of idiosyncratic factor, then potentially that they can just not be suitable for it. And it's not like a condemnation of them as a person, but, but by any means. Exactly. There's kind of the, your general purpose skills, and then you need the specific skills needed in, the, in that job, but then you also need um, like some very narrow, like you need the fit with the team and fit with that specific manager. And yeah, so someone who's really talented in many ways could easily get uh, turned down from many jobs. I mean, another thing to keep in mind, perhaps uh, that might, might provide some comfort if uh, someone's like applying to lots of jobs and not getting in is that if you're not getting rejected to like most of the jobs you're applying for, then you're almost certainly not being ambitious enough about the places that you're trying to get into. Given like how many hours you spend working at a job that you get versus like how many hours it takes to apply for a job, maybe it's like good to have only a few percent acceptance rate because you should be like, you know, aiming really, you should be aiming like sufficiently high uh, in the, yeah, or trying to be sufficiently ambitious that like you should be getting turned down most of the time. Yeah, I think... I mean, it's a bit of a difficult question because we definitely come across people who are both, some people are overconfident and some people are underconfident. And so we've found people who ended up working at like great organizations in the community, but like beforehand they had to be encouraged to apply. They like didn't think they would get the job and then they ended up doing really well at it, kind of like to their surprise. And people like that need to be encouraged to apply more widely. Though like we've also found people who say like, um, recently someone was like saying like my backup job is to work at an effective altruism organization, but like many of those positions are actually really competitive and that's like not going to serve as a good backup. But I agree with what you're saying that in general, I think the error is to like not apply enough because as you say, there's this kind of asymmetry where, uh, spending several months making applications is unpleasant, but like if you can get that even better role, that's like many years of having, having that better role. 
in general, like the, the potential upsides are like greater than the downsides. Yeah, the main reason people don't do that, I think, is that, as you're saying, it's unpleasant to apply for jobs, which I suppose is a reason not to do it. <laughs> and as much as you find it unpleasant, it's like, that's a reason to try to cut short the process a bit. But if you can like find a way to just uh, kind of grit through and like, yeah, apply for even more places and try to get something that's even better, uh, and that doesn't bother you too much, then uh, maybe it's like worth having a crack. Yeah, I mean, in general, also try to have some stretch options where you think you're like, maybe like, don't have a good chance of getting them, but you're like trying to like, maybe push yourself a bit in case you're being underconfident, but also try to have uh, a bunch of backup options to like ensure that you have something solid at the end of the process. One other thing is like, uh, there is a lot you can do to increase your odds of getting a specific job. And we cover a bunch of advice on that in the article itself. But then like, you know, even accounting for that, even if you can bring up your odds, like it'd be pretty hard to bring them up to like more than 10% per job. And so you'd, uh, you'd still need to apply to quite a, quite a large number of places. One example of an area that's like a very tight job market where you might say it's like quite talent constrained is software engineering, but even software engineers would like generally expect to interview at 10, like roughly 10 companies before they would land a position. And that's like one of the most in-demand jobs. Yeah. If you're finding you've, uh, you've run out of specific options to apply for and you, you haven't got enough, there's uh there's like a couple of things you could do. We're trying to list a wider range of options on the job board. Um, so yeah, check that out. One big thing I'd say is you need, you need to apply more widely than just kind of like core effective altruism organizations because there's just like not enough jobs in there to uh, make sure like most people can make enough applications. Uh, it's important to just consider like lo lots of other good organizations that are in these problem areas, but aren't necessarily kind of like official effective altruism organizations. Yeah, I think a big area where there's actually just like a huge number of jobs that uh, many people could take is policy, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, so I think that would be a big area to consider if, you, if you're looking to come up with more options. Yeah. And then the other big things are just to like really try and meet people in the problem area you're interested in. That's like the biggest way that people come across uh, good opportunities. And then, yeah, if you can't find uh, options with immediate impact, then uh, you can consider like lots of ways to gain career capital as well. And that's another way to get a broader range of options. Yeah. Is, is there any particular note that you would like to end on, I suppose, uh, about like how the research has, has come along o over the years or like how much people can get out of trying, trying to like piece all these different pieces of uh, like work together? Yeah, I would. One thing I would say is like, obviously all the topics we've considered are very complex and there's still a lot to learn about them. But like, I think it's important to not lose sight of like, there is concrete stuff to say about each of these issues. And actually it seems like Many things you can do can increase your impact quite a lot. And if you kind of think through all the questions we've considered, if you can choose a more effective problem, you can choose a career path that gets you more leverage, you can find something with slightly better personal fit, uh, you consider the career capital trade-off well, you apply good decision-making advice, all of those added together could lead to really having a career that's like much higher impact than you might have been able to have before. And like this is the whole thing that motivates us to keep working on 80,000 hours. I think another thing is like, you know, we've talked about how our advice has changed and that can also be a bit disorientating, but like partly that's changing because like the people um, interested in these ideas are actually like responding and like addressing some of these issues. So we mentioned like operations management, that was like a path we promoted a few years ago. And then like a bunch of people went and, and did it and um, made the bottleneck less pressing. And so like, it's, it's also really exciting to see our advice changing as people like tackle these issues and also as we, as we learn more, you know, as, as far as we know right now, this is the only systematic attempt to just try to like start from first principles and work out which careers are highest impact. And we're just like a couple of people. So, um, <laughs> we still got a lot to learn, but it's, um, it's a really exciting journey to, to keep learning more and, um, discovering new considerations and 
finding out how to have a bigger impact. My guest today has been Ben Todd. Thanks for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Ben. Thanks. I hope you feel you learned a lot from that quick tour of what we know and uh, don't know about how to have a lot of impact with your career. Uh, The Key Ideas page, which we'll link to in the show notes, uh, has plenty of more specific advice that we didn't manage to cram into that conversation. Uh, So don't feel that this episode has completely substituted for going and reading it. And on top of that, uh, the Key Ideas page links to a a wealth of articles that that go into more detail about almost all of the themes that we covered here, uh, including personal fit, uh, career capital, uh, accidental harm, coordination, uh, every one of the priority paths, um, the case for and against long-termism, and other things like that. And if you're listening to this from far in the future, uh, you can also go see how our advice has changed since November 2019. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, transcripts by Zachy Allhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.